I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept, I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you as per usual by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about Pitcairn Island, a tiny volcanic island in the South Pacific, most famous for its mutineer inhabitants who fled there after the famous Mutiny on the Bounty in 1789. Pitcairn forms part of a four island group known as the Pitcairn Islands, but is the only island in the group to be inhabited. Its nearest inhabited neighbours are Easter Island to the east and French Polynesia to the west. Pitcairn is the least populous national jurisdiction in the world and by far the smallest place we've ever talked about in terms of population, boasting only around 50 residents as of 2018, all descended from the nine bounty mutineers and the few Tahitians they brought with them to the island. The island itself is rocky and experiences warm weather year-round thanks to its location just south of the Tropic of Capricorn. Today, Pitcairn is the only remaining British overseas territory in the South Pacific, its economy relies heavily on tourism, as well as highly prized honey produced by the bees on the island. While all islanders speak English, their first language is Pitcairn, P-I-T-K-E-R-N, a Creole language which is derived from 18th century English dialects and Tahitian. So as we usually start out by doing, uh, we, we talk a little bit about what we're going to learn in the episode and some things that we're looking forward to talking about. So Joe, what about Pitcairn are you looking forward to, to telling us about today? Uh, so, so less about Pitcairn, just something I came across while researching this, is um, that Marilyn Brando had very specific criterias for marriage uh, that are weirdly related to the story of how the Pitcairn Island came to be. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I have a few weird <laughs> kind of Isle of Doctor Moreau crossover concern around this foreshadowing. The, the, the other thing I could say is just it's the only place we've looked at where the foundation myth is actual recorded history. Just mm. cool. Yeah, it all just happened yesterday. Basically, yesterday in terms of the the, the history that we typically talk about. Yeah, for me, I think uh, it's slightly vague, but I'm going to talk about uh, one of the best cases of deja vu in history like uh, you know i i've been here before sort of thing uh somebody right. somebody experiencing a, a a pretty awful experience twice so um that's gonna be fun yeah uh, one of the things i'm i'm kind of interested to get into is just the uh untold effects that some writings maybe a, a box of books let's say the, the the untold effect of finding a big old box of books can i have okay all right so getting into early history uh, as you already alluded to, Joe, there's there's not a lot of it. I mean, as we already Yay. mentioned in the yeah, this is, this is usually a cause of celebration. They did write things down, but yes. they didn't write them down until um, you know very very late in the game. So, yeah, most of the evidence that we have on Pitcairn for pre-mutiny settlers uh, comes from the mutineers themselves, 
who were the first Europeans uh, ever to set foot in the island, as far as we know. Make it up, make it up, make yeah. it up. But after, after they arrived there, it became fairly obvious to them, and I didn't know this uh, previous to kind of like researching the episode, is that mm. um, some others had actually inhabited the place before. I always believed that they were uh, the first people ever to set foot on the island at all. Because it's pretty yeah. remote. It's very remote, yeah. I mean, we talked previously about Easter Island being a, a, a very remote place um, in that episode. And this is, as I mentioned in the intro, one of the closest places to there. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those Pacific Islands where if you if you look it up on Google Maps, you kind of have to zoom out pretty far <laughs> to find any significant landmass right. around it. And zoom in pretty far. Is to it see just sea? Yeah. It's... Did I accidentally click on a bit yeah. of sea? So yeah, when the when the mutineers arrived there, they found evidence of uh, some small dwellings and huts and things, uh, as well as some some tools. And archaeologists that later visited uh, the island, they uh, attempted to determine the source of these relics. And I have a quote here from a historian called Andrew Sharp. He said there were three lots of stoneworks found on Pitcairn, at least one of which was associated with burials. Included in the burials were bits of pearl shell, which must have come from the islands to the north. In the paper that I read from him, he also uh, notes that uh, some of the relics resembled different tools from Hawaii and uh, as far away as Samoa, suggesting mm-hmm. that Polynesian settlements could have dated back here for hundreds of years previous to, like prior to the mutineers. I but suppose this is something we keep we keep coming across is that Polynesian culture they got everywhere, much more widespread and much more commerce based than I think we still give it credit for like there was just ideas and technologies flowing back and forth between islands that you look as you say get lost on a map and these people seem to have no yeah, issue I mean, finding the, them again yeah and again I, I i guess alluding back to our easter island episode which there will be a few kind of connections here obviously but um mm. yeah the the we talked a lot in that episode about amazing feats of polynesian uh, seafaring which speaks to you know how people found their way around they were really good at stuff yeah i mean it's it's pretty incredible how these sort of ancient civilizations made their way around to so many different islands on uh, essentially needles in the haystack so yeah another thing that they found was um cave paintings i guess or carved pictures uh in cliff faces which can still be seen to this day at uh, sites such as down of the gods and down rope as well, uh, which are two two uh, locations in the okay. modern day Pitcairn Island. I've seen them. They look they're pretty impressive looking. Like you wouldn't think they were an, an accident when you arrive in here. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it it would be a little bit perturbing, I guess. Yeah, if you were like mutineer thought, landing I on this place. I thought you said there was no one here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have this image of the mutineers kind of like pulling their boat ashore, like. We we have mutinied and we have been successful. We have beaten the system and we come ashore to create our new world. Ah, oh, there's a system. Yeah. Oh, we mutiny. Cave paintings, we mutiny. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't seen any people, but there's lots of blood-coloured effigies drawn on the walls. Mm. But by gum, we'll mutiny against them <laughs> yeah. too. But yeah, basically, the, the long and short of it is that the origin and destination of these Polynesian seafarers remains pretty uncertain, as far as I can tell. Um, although it's believed that they arrived from an uh, island called Mangareva, about uh, 490 kilometers away from Pitcairn in uh, modern-day French Polynesia. Hmm. So, yeah, but the, but uh, again, the, there were no inhabitants on this island. So they did, they like, when the mutineers arrived, there were no inhabitants here. So For they ages. Did, yeah, so they did abandon it at some point. Um, and but, I, I wasn't 100% clear from the, the little bit I saw on this, Luke. So did, did you see any more that, like, was it a p- case of they died out or they abandoned it or can we know 
again, it's it's again as far as I know, it's not certain. Um, it it okay. looks like they may have abandoned it. Um, but again, it's, because it's, just resources were. Yeah, scarce. I mean, well, we'll find out later on. But the, it, it sounds abandoned. Yeah, there there were decent. There were enough resources to sustain, like you know, uh, people later on. You know, the Europeans eventually, but. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't sound yeah. like uh, like a few dozen. I mean, yeah, a few dozen it's, exactly. It's arguable. Yeah, it, yeah we'll, we'll, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of get to that a little bit, but it's yeah, I'm not not altogether sure that's entirely true because they keep abandoning mm. it because it's far too far too dangerous. I mean, and expensive what do we have? 50, 50 people, people roughly there. there today. So yeah, I yeah. mean, it's it's a bit of a struggle. Yeah, so that's about it for okay. history. So Mark, do you want to tell us about um, how Europeans came to to find their way to this place? So, just um, he- here's a sort of a asterixy kind of first point, um, as opposed to obelixy. Um, the Pitcairn Islands of uh, Ducey and Henderson, they're not Pitcairn Island per se, but those two other islands were apparently discovered by a Portuguese sailor called Pedro Fernandez de Quiros, who was sailing under the Spanish crown. This happened, happened in 1606, uh, which, as we all know, uh, 26th of January, 1606, is Ellen DeGeneres' birthday. So that's a thing, thing, thing we all know well that I didn't kind of Google because I felt that that fact on its own was a bit slack. 1606? Um, uh, 26th of the 1st, 1606 okay, yeah. she, was Ellen wild. birthday. Do you want to know I mean, another um, significant no. anniversary, which I believe is, is oh, yes, occurring please. also right now? Um, I, I, this is completely coincidental and uh, listeners will just have to take me on, on faith here, but... Um, I found out a couple of days ago, weirdly, that uh, I think we are recording, or at least I am recording, and uh, there's a, a yeah. slight peek behind the curtain here because I'm recording very early in the morning tomorrow. and you guys are recording very late at night today. Um, but It's 80 days after dark. Yes, yes, or, you know, still dark for me. Um, right. Yeah, I believe that today, uh, at least in my time, and it will shortly be in your time, uh, is the 230th anniversary of the mutiny on the bounty Oh, wow. Which is a very weird okay. coincidence because we did not plan that at all. But, uh, no, well, we, yeah. we planned to no. do it a few weeks ago and it's yes. cold. Yeah. And I mutinied against that <laughs> cold, fighting it off valiantly, and now we're doing a podcast. Yep. So, um, yeah, if, if listeners want to, wanna, you know, we'll talk about the mutiny a little bit later, but yeah, you can kind of figure oh, out yeah. based on that you're, when, you're, when we are recording. You're, so you're, you're precisely correct. Yes. yes. People can, uh, yeah, we when, don't when, usually when tell release. people about when exactly we're recording, but uh, yeah, I thought that was a fun detail to include. So by so. design, this is the anniversary of the mutiny. Perhaps. Yes. Well yep. done us. Yep. Yeah. Well done. So um, Pedro Fernandez de Quiros, uh, he was described by the Duke of Cesa as a man of good judgment, experienced in his profession, hardworking, quiet and disinterested. Which I guess is a positive thing I think that was a positive a back then. It was like being cool, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't care. A- anyway, yeah, he, he's a cool customer. Um, so he named these uh, two of the Pitcairn rounds that he found La Encarnacion and San Juan Bautista, as in the Incarnation John and St. John the Baptist. Good Catholic names. But it's worth noting that um, because, you know, uh, you know, who knows what was going on? That uh, there, there is a consideration that what he calls San Juan Bautista may actually have been Pitcairn mm. Island. Mm. Um, as we see, there is a bit of confusion about this, and you, you're about to understand why. Officially, Pitcairn Island itself was first sighted 161 years later in 1767 by British soldiers. Mm. 
Pitcairn is named after one Robert Pitcairn. Robert Pitcairn was born in uh, Burnt Island or Burntisland? I'm I'm assuming it's Burnt Island in Fife in Scotland in 1752. His father, John Pitcairn, uh, of the five Pitcairns, um, was born in 1722 and he was a major in the Royal Marines who commanded the British advance party at the Battle of Lexington that fired the Quote, shot shots heard around oh. the world. Mm. Exactly. Cool. Starting the uh, the American War of Independence. It's all connected. Um, he was he, he was around the world when he was good and shot right. uh, at the Battle of Bunker Hill in 1775. And, I mean, probably stabbed also. Probably shot and stabbed. Mm. And trampled and exploded. I don't know. I, I, I just think it, it, was a bit, it was a messy war. Um, but anyway, he, 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 he bit the dust. And uh, his son, on Thursday, the 2nd of July, 1767, uh, he was the first person on his boat, the Swallow, to spot the island. And can we just take a moment to enjoy the name of that boat? Uh, just <laughs> So the island was described by his captain as small, high, uninhabited island, not above four or five miles around, scarce better than a large rock in the ocean. Uh <laughs> Which is actually the same blurb used by the Pitcairn Tourist Board. Uh, scarce better than a large rock. It might Let's well name be. it after the Captain Five Boy. Yeah. So um, the thing thing about this is when when they were doing their discovering, they they wrote down the coordinates incorrectly. Uh, that will be important later. Which Very... meant that the island mm. couldn't they, they they couldn't find it again on later voyages. So just yeah, just on that basis, you know, when you look at kind of previous discovery of the islands. Who knows what they found? Uh, they found these islands probably, and they refound them probably. Uh, but it's all a bit mixy mixy. In fact, um, when the coordinates were checked against actually where the the location of a Pitcairn Island actually is, it it was three hundred and twenty seven kilometers further east than they thought. So so so, well so two done. things on this. I, I have a, a wonderful book called the Phantom Atlas, which is kind of a collection of these places that were kind of thought to exist or temporarily thought to exist or, or doubled up or whatever which is fascinating just how difficult people found it to map the world you know mm. as uh, during this period but a, a big key to that was that um like latitude is pretty easy to determine by just the angle of the sun at midday but longitude has always been a trickier beast for seafarers um and that's a big part of why you get these these errors on maps and Bly for all his faults is a very very diligent navigator and he spends a lot of his accounts talking about the precise long uh, precise longitude of things because he had this really accurate clock mm. that was a new technology yeah. at this time where if you knew exactly what the time was at noon you yeah. could make much more precise calculations about how far east and west you were. And so he was going around re- reassigning coordinates of everywhere they met along the way mm. and sort of going, yeah, the Dutch were only out by a half degree. Oh, but the Spanish, they were out by three degrees, the idiots. Um, and I'm sure if he didn't have encountered Pitcairn himself, uh, he would have been mm. outraged by his forebears in the Royal Navy. For sure, yeah, and I, I mean, we'll get to it again, like you say. It sounds like but, a very useful, useful log, but a very boring one. Mm, yeah. But he he was <laughs> regarded by by many people <laughs> yeah. um, as one of the best navigators of his day. So um, as a jerk, and yeah, that too, yes. Right. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll yeah. also get to that. Stop correcting my work, you jerk. Yes. 
two are not mutually exclusive. Hmm. So just a, a final mention of uh, of Mr. Pitcairn. Uh, he, he then sailed from England on the Aurora in September of that year uh, and called at the Cape of Good Hope in December. In, in 1769, his ship made for the Comoros Islands, but disappeared without a trace. Oh. Ooh. So yeah, he, he, his his contribution to the world stops pretty soon after that. Right. Well, well done him. Okay. So Joe, do you want to do you want to tell us about the the famous uh, bounty mission? I guess and and what uh, what befell it. So so never never has an episode we've done hint so much on a single event. Yeah, uh, it's true. Almost exclusively, you could say like. The, uh, and and also say I I've done very little reading about the mutiny. Uh, so I'm still kind of on the fence as to whether I think they're, you know, a bunch of work shy blowhards, mm. uh, or or whether they were under uh, the tyrannical yoke of a of a madman. Oh, good. Yeah, I I was there for a while, and and then I picked side. Uh, Funny enough that that, but yeah, as you as you allude to, Mark, I think, and 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 Joe as well, is that like this is this is not even settled today. Like it's a. It's a story nope, we should preface invited. this. Yeah, we should we should preface this by saying that um, there are a lot of different uh, opinions on this, and particularly on our our main mm. character Bly, who we're just going to be introduced to now. But um, yeah, yes. I I read a couple of different books in preparation for this episode, and and I read a couple of other different books. Yes, the different books you read, and better historians than us have disputed. But sorry, better historians than us, by which I mean actual historians. Yeah, and uh, Caroline Alexander was uh, has written one of the most famous books on the on the topic, and she's one of the more famous uh, Bly defenders, saying that he he is a kind of a misunderstood mm. genius, and and that like a lot of the uh, the conditions that his men were uh, found themselves in and under his command uh, were typical of the day, and you know that he's been kind of painted in a in a very negative and unfair light um, by by the fake news media um whereas like a lot of the <laughs> people saw the mutineers as heroic the daily mutineer well. yeah a lot of the um, other that's the other the predominating view accounts have been him as a tyrant and as a can we tell can we tell the story yeah we will tell the story starting just after this short break yes michael you old son of a gun i'd sell me breeches to hear the truth of that mutiny you remember you said the tune you played just now brought back memories. Yeah, so that that music was from the 1932 Errol Flynn movie adaption of the of the real life uh, events of the mutiny on the bounty. It was a, a sea shanty that was uh, featured in that movie. So yeah, Joe, do you want to tell us about uh, yeah, Captain Bly and our our main character in the story? Yeah. So I have to admit by saying that to me, the word bounty always meant three things, and in this exact order: uh, a chocolate bar, uh, which I didn't really like, a brand of absorbent paper towel. Um, which was always too expensive. And then and only then part of the phrase mutiny on the bounty, about which I knew almost nothing, except that, you know, those words went together. There was a mutiny yeah. on the bounty, apparently. I think uh, the most controversial part of that statement, Joe, is that you didn't like the bounty bar, which I, 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 I find, you know, I find yeah, quite... Yeah, uh, for me. 
quite tasty, but uh, okay, fair enough. Not a big fan of coconuts, it, and in that in that way, I differ from Captain it, it, Bly. It's a very meaty chocolate mm. bar. All, all that all that dry yeah, coconut. Sure. So we've just had a mutiny about the bounty there. Mm. Oh, <clears throat> well done. So I don't know if you guys know about LibriVox. Yes, people like yep. record public domain books. So I'm indebted to them because okay. uh, both A Voyage to the South Sea by Lieutenant William Bly. Oh, right. His, his account. So I, I listened to that um, and I developed a strong sympathy for, for this fastidious navigator and mm. his uh, his belligerent um, crew who were who just couldn't couldn't take orders. And Ch- Chapter five. All my girlfriends. I have many girlfriends. <laughs> they like me because I'm handsome and nice. I also got around to listening to a, a book called The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Practical Seizure of HMS Bounty, Its Cause and Consequences an 1831 account by Sir John Barrow, which uses more diverse primary sources to make its case. So he does use Bly's account, (laughs) but also contrasts it with his unpublished parts of his journal that he didn't put in the hastily assembled publication. I I wish I had a girlfriend. I have no girlfriend. (laughs) And um, it it gave a very different view of events. And this book was very much trying to clear the name of of one of the, the... alleged mutineers who claimed he wasn't on board with it. They're not going to sue you, Joe. Alleged mutineers. So, as I say, consensus opinion is taking different sides. Better historians than us have not yet agreed on who's the goody and who's the baddie, and we, in fact, are not historians. Uh, Yes. (laughs) um, Always good to note. Yep. So, uh, the purpose of the Bounty's Voyage was that merchants in the West Indies wanted... Uh, well, they had lots of slaves that they had stolen from Africa, oh, no. and they were doing hard labor in the fields, and they needed food. And food's expensive, and they'd heard of this magical food that existed in uh, Tahiti and other Polynesian islands called the breadfruit, and they were they thought it would make financial sense to bring it to the West Indies and to Jamaica in particular as a cheap food source. It all starts with breadfruit. It does. Breadfruit, which grows like apples. Mm. Uh, the natives of Guam bake it, pair off the rind. The interior is like fluffy bread. It's just bread that grows in trees. I, I, I was going to say, Luke, it, it, it all begins with man's inhumanity to man. It's not really... I mean, I'm sure it's a tasty fruit, but that's not really... I don't know if bread's what I'm looking for in yeah. a fruit. Like, I don't mm. want to bite into an apple that tastes <laughs> like bread. But Apple sandwiches. Have any of us ever tasted um, breadfruit? I know I haven't. No, me neither. No. Uh, okay. Nope. But it's got a lot of advantages. Like it grows eight months of the year. In Tahiti, people don't really plant them. They just kind of keep growing from the roots. You can't kill them. Mm. Um, okay. And Bly had this in his kind of commission, kind of quoting, I think quoting a previous study on the issue, that if a if a man were to plant 10 trees, which he could do in half an hour, he may do, he may do as well by his family and descendants. He may do as well by his family and descendants as much as people from our less temperate lands do by ploughing and planting and toiling all the year. Lieutenant William Bly was appointed to command the HMS Bounty with very precise instructions of route and mission, fitted for 18 months at sea and given various trinkets to trade with indigenous people because she's not so people want trinkets. Ah, Jesus. Um, Some adjectives that are associated with the man. Uh, He was known for his cleanliness, his adherence to discipline, Mm. his strong naval tradition. Uh, He was very miserly. He was a skilled navigator (laughs) and he was obsessed with his reputation. Wow, he sounds like an yeah. 
yeah, yeah, just pros and cons. On, on the face of it, you know, just you know, without 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 regard to anybody mutineering him against him or or whatever, he sounds like he's a he's a tough crowd. Yeah, but uh, important to note, he discipline in the Royal Navy was rough at this time. There was a lot of whipping and stuff. But he was not anywhere near being one of the worst offenders. There's like three cases of flogging during the whole voyage of two years. To, to me, I think the miserly stuff is probably more important. So because of the small size of the ship, he was the only commissioned officer. And he would also serve as the okay. ship's purser, which meant he was in charge of the supplies and the money and, and so a, on. A couple of things, I think, to mention right. as well, Joe. Um, one one is that I don't, I don't know if you're going to mention this about uh, the fact that they didn't have any um, soldiers on board to enforce, mm, no enforce his rule. Yeah. Uh, Marines, yeah. Yeah, t- so two important points to kind of separate fact from fiction. Um, many popular adaptations of, of the story have press ganging as part of the narrative, that, like, the sailors were press ganged and forced into service. That's not true. They were all volunteers, many of whom had sailed with Bly before in the Navy or in his commercial ventures, which he uh, had done for a couple of years as well. But due to the unique nature of the mission, many alterations were made to the ship to make it lighter, to make it more durable. It wasn't going to be going into war, you know, which was the generic configuration of these ships. So yeah. it was it was going to be basically going on a botany mission. And the great cabin, which normally would have been the captain's quarters, was converted into a greenhouse with blaze windows, skylights, a lead-covered deck and drainage selfless systems to to prevent the the fresh water being lost but this led to a lot of overcrowding yeah i mean the 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 majority of the space i think from what i read was was lost from uh sort Mm. of where where the crew would sleep like bly still had a had a moderately sized cabin whereas the crew were sort of like okay we're we we, all of us have to sleep here what what the hell yeah so (laughs) everyone went down a wrong from where they normally would be yes oh there were 44 total crew including 22 able seamen. Added to this list were two gardeners, as they were called, but they were botanists from the Royal Society, David mm. Nelson, who had been on Cook's exploration, and William Brown. And uh, just fun note, one of the able seamen was a, a blind fiddler called Michael Byrne from Kilkenny in Ireland. Yeah. Um, he was he was included on the roster, I believe, uh, because Bly was very, very insistent upon having music on the ship and he found it very difficult mm. before uh crewing up to find anyone who would play music and was also willing to come on the voyage and this guy was sort of like a last resort i guess but uh yeah, yeah it's uh it's kind of a, a fun side note does that not seem a bit mad because dancing was required to keep the man in good shape that was one of the, one of his but, one of his big uh big but, things yeah was dancing but isn't that also isn't that also mad? Mm-hmm. Completely like, normal. Demanding people do endless dancing for their fitness. Mm. You know what we need on this very long 18-month voyage into the unknown? Uh, a blind guy with a fiddle. Uh, I don't... I don't... I don't... Yeah, I mean... It's a different world, true. Mark. It's a different world. Um, we should also mention, Joe, you you, you touched on him briefly there, but um, Captain Cook, Bly was like a almost like a protege of, of Captain should. Cook. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he actually was witness to uh, Captain Cook's murder on Hawaii, uh, and also he 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 had been to Tahiti before. Yes, so and he's I think spoke some of the language as well. So he 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 was the right man for the job for sure. Yeah, in that regard, the other important character in the story is Fletcher Christian. He was taken on as the master's right. mate. Uh, he was of Manx heritage from like a patrician family. Oh, so uh, uh, Isle of Man. That's another callback to our previous yeah. episode. There yeah. you go. 
Um, Bunch of now, the family kind of fell on hard times. His mother fled back to the Isle of Man where her English debtors couldn't couldn't pursue Devil her because the laws are different. Oh, right. Um, okay. And he was six years ahead of William Wordsworth at Cockermouth Free School. Um, excuse me? You heard me. <laughs> Ex- excuse me. <laughs> what school? Cockermouth Free School. He said William Wordsworth. Thank you, Joe. Mark. It's not, it's not that funny of a name. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I, I missed that. I was wondering, who, 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 is, who else was at this? It's notable school. And, and also, yeah, he'd, ser- he'd served under Bly as a cabin boy um, and in the Merchant Navy as well. So they knew each other. They were, um, I've even seen described as a master-pupil relationship, which had led to Christian becoming a, a naval navigator. And he, he wanted to take him on as his first officer, but he wasn't experienced enough. So he took on a guy called Friar, who mm. he never really liked. And yeah. you'll see that that had some tensions as well. But anyway, they were pretty delayed leaving England because bad weather. It's never bad weather in England. They mm. eventually got underway in like December 1787. Uh, and okay. they were to go around Cape Horn, around South America, but the odds are pretty much against that at this time of year. Yeah. Um, they stopped off at Tenerife and... Bly sent Fletcher Christian ashore to represent the ship to the Spanish governor and help replenish the stocks, lost the storms and so on. Again, this kind of showed that he favoured Christian as his representative rather than his official first officer. And he kind of made it formal uh, a few weeks later on March 2nd when Christian was appointed acting lieutenant and put in charge of uh, third watch. So usually in the Navy there'll be two watches doing four-hour shifts on and off. And Bly had this notion of doing three, four-hour shifts where everyone got eight hours rest between shifts, which is kind of revolutionary. So him and Friar and and uh, Christian alternated command throughout the day. Sure. The idea was they'd be able to right. move non-stop to, um, and get there as quick as possible. So one, one of the first instances of sort of stinginess or, or creative bookkeeping or whatever it was, or paranoia, crops up while they're still on the west coast of Africa when Bly accused someone of stealing cheese from the cheese barrel. Two wheels of cheese were missing. Mm. And everyone remembered that this barrel had been transported to his house while they were in England Yep, and transported back again. And so it was one of these situations where your boss is like, where's all the, you know, printer toner gone? And you're like, so you put it in your bag. Yeah. I wasn't going to say anything. But now, now that you're, you're accusing me of stealing it, yeah, it's a, it's a bit... It's yeah. a, um, you know, if you want to steal to office supplies, that's fine, you're the boss. But don't... <laughs> don't accuse me of stealing them. Right. Yeah. So that's the vibe I get from that story. Yeah. Um, Seems and he spitefully replaced the bread rations of the men with, with rotted pumpkins to punish them for this imaginary crime. Hmm. Okay, that's quite quite yeah. bad. So there was kind of stuff like that happened, which might explain why he wasn't the most He's beloved. feeding them rotten pumpkin. Yeah. Good. So yeah. less whipping, more kind of miserly penny pinching. Yeah. Or or he stole the things and then was trying to cover it up. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't great. Um, no. And the only other kind of in important point about the. African part of the voyage is that Matthew Quintal, whose name we'll notice again, uh, was punished with 12 lashes after he had been accused of insolence and mutinous behaviour. So, and again, not everyone on the ship. <laughs> again, we should we should we should mention that like this was 
I, I think like we alluded to earlier, is not uncommon on ships uh, at this no. time at all. No. Like it's it's a fairly regular occurrence for people to be lashed, even though it's it's horrific. But it's you know, it's not like. Uh, but this this is the only record of that happening on this journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, within the first four months, or five months. So yeah. I mean, it wasn't like he was just randomly whipping people every day. You guys love him for the the specific amount of lashing yeah. he did. <laughs> like he only did one lashing in the first four months. Is yeah. important. Well, apparently in month five he went lash happy. Yeah. Like, um, so they the, spend a month trying to get around Cape Horn. Uh, Lies very stubborn about following his orders. Um, but right. eventually it became Useful. clear that it was impossible and they went around to Cape Good Hope. Oh, all right. Um, all right. But again, this bred a bit of resentment among the men, probably. Okay. They crossed the Indian Ocean without, without incident and came to Van Diemen's Land, landing in Adventure Bay, which uh, where go back people, to an episode in Tasmania. Yeah, where, where people had adventures. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And ate each other. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a nice account of that in his book, but it's not really relevant to the... Pitcairn Island just they went ashore for wood and water and kind of found evidence of their previous visits which is kind of cool like mm. trees they planted oh. were still flourishing and so on you kind of forget like how few people were exploring the world and like how they kept going to the same places yep it's like I know this is a stream here so I go there for water uh, mentioning all, Tasmania as well um, I'll just foreshadow slightly here that um, Matthew Flinders who we talked about in our Tasmania episode also has a cameo later in this uh, this really? episode yes he does um <laughs> A very, very notable one, actually. So, okay, yeah, just a little look forward to it. Yeah. Um. So finally, they they come to the Society Islands, which is where the island then called Otaheite is. We call it Tahiti today. I'm probably gonna. I think it's. Call it Tahiti I think it's best on. that we call it Tahiti. Yeah. In Bly's account, he kind of sets the seeds of the narrative he will use to explain the mutiny with the following comment. It's and I'll also preface this by saying. Some words have changed their meaning over the years. This isn't as dirty as it sounds. Right. Um, oh, my word. It should not be expected that our intercourse with the natives would be of a very reserved nature. So the okay. surgeon was ordered to examine everyone before they reached Tahiti, and the crew showed no signs of venereal complaints. Yeah, I, I was reading something uh, recently about like um, a different voyage and, and different Pacific islands, and, and seemingly this this particular uh, group of islands I think known as the friendly islands at the time were <laughs> p- particular oh, were, were regarded oh, by sailors as friendly. particularly friendly yeah, yeah. as friendly yes. so mm, no so Bly no. certainly expected people to um, to go ashore yeah uh, but inco- important to note that the word intercourse meant in- interactions sure kind of more generally but, 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 but they're also checking their venereal just in case so yeah. mm. So no, I mean they they intercourse uh, to have some intercourse. Yeah, <laughs> intercourse was among the intercourses they were intercourse. Entertainingly, conversation had a dirtier meaning back in this day than. Ah, right. okay. So, um, the 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 account of their arrival in the bay at Tahiti is really fun. Like there's this real excitement where all these canoes come out to meet them, and people are kind of clambering up on the ship and sort of going, you know, who are you guys? And when they found out they were Britanni as they called them, they were super excited. Like, oh, yeah, we love these guys. Yeah. These guys are great. Because no. they really liked Man. Captain Cook. They loved Captain Cook. They had, a, like, a painting of him that they, like, kept and re- revered and stuff. Yeah, they called, they called them... Called them Cookie. Uh, Cookie. Yeah, yeah. Did they, I, I think they. I think I, what I read, they called them Toot. Um, was, it like, their their nickname oh. for him. Oh, right. Yeah, Even because better. they, they couldn't pronounce Cook correctly, so they just called him Toot. Oh, uh, of course. And uh, Bly was uh, Bry. Toot. 
apparently. Um, That's all right. Again, known as Bry. Yeah. So. So he, Bly obviously didn't really like this behavior when you have like you know he's like you couldn't move on the deck because it was just full of lads who come off canoes <laughs> just hanging around kind of picking stuff up and looking at it they stole my rotten pumpkins yeah. <laughs> while i feed the men but they were warmly welcomed with food you know hogs and yams and chickens and breadfruit were all brought aboard and, and that was great um as i say i think bly spoke some tahitian or at least some people on the ship did uh and he knew some of the leading men they all asked after Captain Cook. Uh, they'd heard rumours he was dead, and um, Bly was sad to confirm this, but he wouldn't give them the details. He was he wasn't in the mood to tell them about the whole being eaten by the Hawaiians thing. Yeah, don't don't want to give them any ideas. Ideas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they were hosted during the stay by by um, I think the Paramount Chief, a kind of a king type figure who was now called Tina. He had previously had a different name when they were last Excellent. here. Yeah, there's a but there's I a very weird worked. system of chiefs and and different names and things like that, which we probably don't I have time to get into. I think when you have but... a son, your son gets the name you used to have, and then he becomes the king. But he's obviously a child, so you continue being the king. Also, your your but, your son who is who becomes the king yeah. is never allowed to touch the ground. Um, apparently, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, or, and you or have there... to uncover your shoulders to go visit him. Yeah, it's all very odd. Yeah, very weird. And Bly wasn't keen on that. He'd take his hat off, but he wouldn't he wouldn't uncover his shoulders. Hmm. Um, there was a lot of exchanging of gifts. Uh, anything of iron was, you know, for an inaccurate um, nails was was gold dust. They loved nails, um, yeah, because they had no iron. Mm. And iron is useful. You know, the Iron Age wasn't a big part of prehistory for nothing. Like it's it's right. it's a changing time. It's a great material. Yep. Um, Bly kind of comments a lot on how decadently Tina ate and sort of lived his life he was living his best life and Bly was like mm, he's eating a lot he's quite fat already he just keeps okay. eating oh jeez um, so Bly didn't want to tell them exactly what he was here for in case they realised that breadfruit were valuable and then try to mm. like trade with yeah. him so he'd just be like oh we're just you know King George wanted me to come and have a look at the place again and obviously give my regards to you He's like, oh, I love King George. I'd love to meet him someday. This is kind of what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. And Bly gets Tina to a point where he's like, I'd love to do anything to kind of help King George. Yeah, to, to gain his favour, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And Bly's like, well, you know what he would like? <laughs> Those breadfruit seem really tasty. <laughs> yeah. I'd say he'd love if I could bring back, you know, a couple of hundred plants in little pots. Yeah. Which I haven't prepared for in any way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My ship just happens to be uh, to be fitted out with like yeah, as he said, the the, the special requirements that would yeah. would allow me to transport the, the these greenhouse back. room. Yeah. So anyway, they set up all these plants on the beach. Christian sets up some tents for them, and uh, Tina believed Bly was doing him a favor by by taking their stuff. It's yep. a great deal. Good man, Tina. Um, as anticipated fraternization with the locals was um, universal, should we say? Mm. Conversation, would we yeah. say? Yeah. They're very conversational. Uh, a few comments from, from Bly's account was that uh, the intimacy between the natives and our people was already so general that there was not a man who didn't have his Taino or friend. Which I think literally just means friend. But Yeah, Taino I think is a weird is a is a interesting it's like blood term. Brother it's Taino. like blood brother or something, yeah. So every single Tahitian wanted to have like a a, a, a best buddy from from the crew. 
and they essentially just just were like okay you're my friend now and that was sort of, sort of like a concept that existed on the on the island yeah and um it resulted right. we may not talk, talk about talk it later but it, take what you want yeah it, it 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 later resulted in one of the mutineers becoming a chief because basically when you're when you die mm-hmm. your tainyo takes over your stuff like i think takes oh. over responsibility for your for, oh, wow. for your your worldly responsibilities yeah best man for life and one of the tainyos yeah. was a minor chief that one of the mutineers later, <laughs> later, uh, like he later died, and one of the mutineers, yeah, exactly, becomes like a, a minor chief on this island. So that's that's kind of cool. And, and also, the, uh, there was a comment from from Bly that uh, you know, at nightfall, all of our male visitors left the ship. Which seems a weird thing to clarify, mm. unless other visitors didn't. Um, right. Yeah. So I've also read a bit about like the unimaginable value of iron in the society and some of the stuff I've read is about how it sort of played a role in relationships that weren't typical of traditional Tahitian kind of social mores it's like some of this stuff of the the behaviour of, of Tahitian women with the, with the sailors would have been considered outrageous except for the oh, value so of it was because iron. they were like bringing like absolute like like it was seen as like a massive boom time for the community because yeah. like we got iron we got so much friggin iron and so, yeah. oh my god that, that's what I was saying to you earlier Luke about okay. this reputation of the uh, friendliness of the islands may not be true before Europeans get there sure get me that the, they they inverted the economic structure yeah of the society and similarly like theft wasn't very common um, right in, Polynesian culture in Tahiti until the Europeans arrive when a ship turns up with little bits of iron stuck in every board of wood then you go and nick some iron because it's unimaginably valuable and you know it it was just um, a disrupting force in in the society sure which we have to bear in mind but overall people were welcomed and were made tainos and were promised you know beautiful things if they stayed and uh, apparently, Tahitians were very prone to like crying, you mm. know, really expressing emotions in the now, but not really holding grudges. This, this all sounds lovely. Please tell me how it becomes <laughs> awful. Okay. So the the surgeon on the ship had been noted as a drunk and pretty uh, unhygienic and not particularly useful. <laughs> um, the guy you want to be unhy- unhygienic, mm. and he he died at some point in Tahiti of indolence and drunkenness, which is uh, Bly unsympathetically recorded. But this guy just drank himself to death, like a like, like a, a good, good doctor, good way of dying. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the the biggest insubordination came when when three sailors deserted and stole the cutter, and sailed off to a nearby little island. But uh, the, the cutter being like a little, little like boat, a small boat. Yeah. yeah. Little boat. And they were yeah. the Tahitians helped to track them down, and they eluded capture basically till Bly went off from a person. Um, and shortly before they left, a cable securing the ship was cut in the night, endangering the craft. At the time, Bly was really angry at the at Tina and the chiefs, but looking back, he said it might well have been one of his own men, because he hadn't really realised how keen they might have been to stay mm. in this paradise. Oh, wow, all those conversations uh, and. You know, they'd have been her home for twenty-eight weeks, and maybe they would forgo all possibility time, of returning yeah. to, you know, Sheffield or wherever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the natives were very sad when they eventually left, following the ship out to sea as far as they could in canoes, and uh, Tina only got off the the deck when he really had to. 
basically all, all hands were called on deck to give the chief three cheers huzzah as he went huzzah away huzzah for the chief yeah I mean uh, I, and uh, d- 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 I think I think we should note here that like uh, quite a few of the mutineers had you know not necessarily just been whoring around but some of them notably including Christian had developed like uh, seemingly quite deep relationships with some of the women on the island like um, you know the the Christian is, is one of the one of the most notable examples uh, and I think part of that is due to the fact that as you mentioned Joe they had to stay here for 28 weeks to like grow and then mm. uh, like successfully transplant the trees from from Tahiti onto, onto yeah, the bounty and I think, and, I think um, it, was in a very, it was a dormant period of their growing cycle so they had to wait till they were flowering again or something yeah. I don't really get a breadfruit okay, so this, this right, is like right. a lot longer than people would typically stay here if they're passing through on a voyage and that allowed a lot of the later mutineers to develop you know, um, as I say, very close relationships with some Serious. of the women on the island. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. They were there like six, seven months. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize yeah. that. It's a long time. And um, Bly pondered that the ruin of the mission that would come and the loss of the plants that have been its purpose could probably be ascribed to the kindness shown to them by the natives of all kinds, not just... That's the way to see things. Right. And yeah. They were too he, nice. Says in his account, his published account, he had no idea that there was a conspiracy afoot. All right. Interesting. Okay, should we take a quick break there? And then we'll come back with the infamous, infamous yeah, mutiny. Hey, listeners. We have already been getting some really great feedback from you about season four, and I really hope you're enjoying what you're hearing in this episode so far. We've decided once again this season not to place ads on the show and instead rely directly on our listeners for support. The platform that we use to do that is called Patreon, and it allows you to throw a little money our way every episode in exchange for some exclusive rewards, or simply the warm, fuzzy feeling you get from supporting independent podcasters. If you want to get involved, please go to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash eight zero days podcast to find out more. And now let's get on with the show. Yeah, so there probably wasn't actually a conspiracy. Um, okay. And that's why he didn't this, see... This goes into the Bly as madman. Yeah, kind of the kind of paranoia. Like, he, he, he had to justify why it happened, and his story was the lustful commoners wanting to, you know... And he's still thinking about that cheese, <laughs> that wheel of cheese that he stole and ate. Yes, so in fact, a mutiny likely just happened more or less in an instant where the correct circumstances aligned. Uh, and a man with enough authority to lead it, led it, and it happened. Uh, but Bly didn't endear himself to his men nor his officers. He, was, he wasn't held in a lot of regard. He didn't really regard his officers. I, I'm all on board. Bly seems like a total jerk. Even even though you're kind of like pushing the line, like, well, you know, he was just a guy and, you know, times were tough and, you know, he was a miser and he stole all their cheese and he fed them some garbage. <laughs> he tried to, you know, make out that... Spending time with the locals was a bad thing, and he was PO that they all had venereal disease. And yeah, I, I can see he's a bummer. He's not a party guy. I, I can. I so can see I, I think you'll you'll be on on Christian uh, Fletcher Christian's side in. I think I might these, be. Yes. In these two instances that immediately preceded the mutiny, so the mutiny happened only a week or two after they left Tahiti. Okay. Because they knew they had had a good time behind them, and now they were kind of scared about what was to come. Sheffield, uh, or just getting around Cape Horn. Breadfruit. 
All right, fair enough, yeah. So three days before the mutiny, there's an account of Christian leading a watering party onto an island, which I think is in Tonga, where the natives threatened them. Okay. Bly had forbidden anyone to fire on the natives, which is a reasonable policy. Uh, but Yeah, quite, quite reasonable, but, uh, yeah. When Christian kind of brought this up, that he'd been a bit nervous about the cannibals or whatever trying to eat him. Uh, he was damned as a cowardly rascal and asked if he was scared of some naked savages whilst you had weapons in your hand. And his response... But you just told me not to shoot them! Exactly. That was and what you told me! His response was, the arms are of no effect, sir, while your orders prohibit their use. Which is a fair point. Yeah, it was very true. Um, you jerk. And then the day before the mutiny, Blyde failed to appear on deck until about noon, which was a bit unusual. He was kind of assumed, they assumed he was sick or something. When he okay. did appear on deck, he had a temper on him. And he accused individuals of stealing his coconuts. Uh, <laughs> perhaps he'd gone coconuts himself. Oh, well um, then. Bly believed that the officers should have seen who stole the coconuts and requested them to tell him who did. Okay, Joe, Joe, <laughs> Joe. Who stole the coconuts? We know who stole there the damn coconuts. There was a personal store of coconuts. The same, uh, yeah. Who had access means motive opportunity. He stole a damn coconut, Joe. <laughs> he stole his own damn cheese. Who stole the cheese from my house in the locked house that I only had access to? Oh, wait. Who stole my coconuts in my personal quarters that I had coconuts for? Oh, it no, was... No, so, I, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely sympathize with your, with your view there, Mark, but um, I think reading about this incident... Um, did you steal his coconuts, <laughs> Luke? Is that, is that what we're I did not, but it is, it is a very petty thing because apparently um, each of the men had like... Their own um, personal uh, stock of coconuts. Yeah, but they had a... They had a gigantic pile, apparently. Each man had, a, like, a big pile of, like, dozens of coconuts each. And um, at least what I read about this was that Bly was missing maybe two or three from his pile. And he was... And it's debatable as to whether anybody stole any coconuts. But he was like... Oh, no, that, that's that's the key. Yeah. Right, yeah. That, he, like, he just was like, my pile is slightly smaller than it was yesterday. One of you guys must have stolen my coconuts. And I will. I demand yes. to know who it was. He ate those coconuts. Mm. He is the coconut. He thief. drunkenly ate coconuts and then forgot about it. <laughs> that's that's my theory. He, was, he had a coconut yeah. hangover. What was he doing for those extra hours? Counting and recounting the coconuts. It, he ate three coconuts. Is this why bounty bars are called bounty bars? It might be. Ooh. That's a good. Uh, that's a, yeah. That's a that's a good uh, good shout there. So he requested Fletcher Christian tell him about the coconuts. And he said, <laughs> Fletcher, 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 Fletcher." Tell me, Fletcher. Look at me. Yes, Tell yes, me sir. about the coconuts. Uh, There's coconuts rolling everywhere on the deck. I do not know, sir. But but I hope you don't. Th- <laughs> but I hope you don't think me so mean as to be guilty of stealing yours. Ooh. And Bly responds quite swearily for the time. Yes, you damned hound. I do. You must have stolen them from me, or you could give a better account of them. God damn you, you scoundrels! You're all thieves alike, and combine with the men to rob me. I suppose you'll steal my yams next, but I'll sweat you, you rascals. I'll make half of you jump overboard before you get through Endeavour Straits. Yeah. I mean... So people were a bit edgy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, telling the men that he's going to... No, 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 you no. Know, no. Not, I, again, it, it, not people, it comes back him. to context of, um, you know, like, mm. this is the sort of thing where my understanding is that threatening these kinds of things was not, again, necessarily an unusual thing on these kind of, on these kind of ships. But one of the things that I found was interesting is that calling people, particularly officers like Christian, 
uh, rascals and scoundrels, which sounds to us was, super oh, tame, yeah. was like very insulting to their to their sense of yeah. honor and pride. Um, and you know, implying like, that they might have stolen something is like is like for, for the for day. day. Their honor. No, your your name is yeah. your name. You know, it's it's reputation is enormous. But, but like the word "damn" is 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 censored in the original books, right? You know that that oh, was geez. that was the the, the f bomb of the time, right? Because you know, people were religious. Okay. So being damned meant something. Yeah. So he punished the crew and cut their rum rations and halved their food rations. And it's also quoted as saying, I'll let them eat grass. And because he was both the purser and the captain, there was no way to redress this injustice without being flogged. So there was just this tension. Like, you know, he could have been brought to some kind of justice in England. Right. If there was a a valid complaint, you know, captain, like sailors were citizens. They had the right to rights, but the captain was legally entitled to do what he liked of them until they were yeah. before a magistrate. So there could have been consequences, but not for a long, long time. And he's now saying, I'd make half of you jump overboard. So, yeah. And and cutting their rations and yeah various other <clears throat> unpleasant things. And this obviously wasn't in Bly's published um, account. Of course, yeah. What is yeah. in his published account is that Christian was due to dine with him that night, but didn't make it. So on the was it April the twenty eighth, um, seventeen eighty nine? Mister mm-hmm. Christian had the morning watch, and. I'm going to first kind of tell you the story from Bly's point of view, which is just... Ooh, it's like a, Ra- a Rashomon sort of thing. You're going to tell you're going to tell us two different stories that yeah, apparently yeah. are both true. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. So Bly, w- Bly wakes up with um, the master at arms, the gunner's mate. Coconut and cheese in his breath. Burkett, and uh, yeah. and just Christian bursting into his cabin before sunrise as he was asleep. They tied his hand behind his back and threatened him with instant death if he made the least noise. Nonetheless, he shouted out because, you know, but the mutineers had stationed guards at the doors of those officers who, they were, who were not in on their plan. Uh, Christian had a cutlass and the others had muskets and bayonets and they would not explain themselves, but just shouted at him for not minding his tongue. The boatswain was ordered to, to let out the ship's boat under threat uh, and if he wouldn't do it to take care of himself. Uh, he complied. Um, Bly's account is very angry he's like the villains around me had their pieces cocked and their bayonets fixed and upon daring the ungrateful wretches to fire they uncocked them he's like so they were cowards is what he's saying right um, right. people were called by name bundled over side, the side into the boat uh, if they were kind of considered loyal to Bly uh, in the end a lot more people were on his side than not but just the way the mutiny unfolded the mutiny won so, like, you know, they didn't have half of the ship on their side. Sure. And I, but my, no one was too enthusiastic about Yeah, my understanding was stopping that it. But they're not a, a, democratic lot, a lot of people were sort of so. undecided almost or, or like were, were hmm. maybe opposed to the mutiny, were, were not opposed enough to um, necessarily start an, an armed struggle against the mutineers. Um, yeah, and if you come up on deck right. after it's happened. Yeah. Because you were asleep. And they have guns. It doesn't really matter what side you're on. You're on the winning side. What's the opinion of the people with the guns? I want to hear from them. An awful lot of people volunteered to go with Bly, though. Like, almost, more than, yeah. I think more than half the crew. In, more than could fit right? on the boat. Yes, yeah. yeah. They were given time to collect some stuff, so they, they 
got together bread and twine and cloth and compasses. Uh, the clerk was sent to secure Bly's logs and records so he'd have evidence of what he'd done. Because um, otherwise his honour was at stake or whatever. Not steal cheese. Um, he did not steal cheese. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he tried to take 15 years of charts and his timekeeper and was stopped. They said, damn your eyes, you're well off to get what you have. Which is true. Yeah, I mean, uh, being put in, into an... I, I mean, we should stress this. Being put into like an open boat uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean at the best of times in 2019 would be pretty terrifying. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but at, with, without a chart yeah. or a compass. Yes. <laughs> so at this time, yeah, this is this is like eff- effectively a death sentence. Like a lot of these people who were getting into this boat or, or even volunteering to get into the boat with Bly were essentially yeah. resigning themselves to, to a, a horrible death mm. as far as they knew. Honor over practicality. Yes. Uh, there were a few people who tried to leave but forced back aboard. So the... the um, Armourer Joseph Coleman and two carpenters, Macintosh and Norman, were kept because they were useful hmm. and asked Bly to remember that they didn't want to stay. And he said, okay. I'll do you justice if ever I reach England. That's a that's and a super interesting quote because some people read it as a threat and some people read it as people who were loyal to him read it as like, I'll, you know, I'll remember you guys and I'll, I'll come rescue you. To be fair, but... he, he did. He did clear their names sure yeah but uh, yeah it's it's but kind of an interesting everyone. from his perspective it's kind of a, a double yeah. edge yeah, yeah or yeah. Uh, it has two meanings because it's like you know I'll, I'll do you guys the mutineers justice by making sure you're hanged essentially yeah 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 and the carpenter was allowed to go on the boat with his tools because this tools belonged to him not to the navy mm. so he was allowed to take his tools all right and as a kind of a final gambit Bly offered Christian to just let him go and would speak no more of it you know on his honour he wouldn't he wouldn't um, make a big deal out of the attempt at mutiny. And Christian had this outburst. He's like, if you had honour, you wouldn't have come to this. If you had not acted as such a villain. Right. I've been in hell this past fortnight and you know it well. Uh, I've been used like a dog. So it seems like Christian was very conflicted about his role in the mutiny. He didn't really want to mutiny, but he felt obliged to. It's the vibe. It was the honourable yeah. thing to do, or I guess. Not even the honourable thing to do, but the, the, for the safety of the crew almost. So... In the end, 18 people were let out on the ship's boat, mostly loyalists. They were given four cutlasses in the last minute act of charity. Uh, a few pieces of pork and clothes were also thrown to them. And they were set adrift, the rope cut. And little thought was given to their unlikely survival. So the way Bly saw it was um, they had imagined it in their power to fix themselves upon one of the finest islands in the world where they would not need to labour and where the allure of this. Disp- of dissipation are beyond what could be conceived and he claims he heard them shouting huzzah for Otahiti on the ship that that's disputed by people who were on the ship Um, and Bly lamented Christian's betrayal uh, because he was from a respectable family and so on and likewise of uh, Hayward and Young who were two two of the um, trainee kind of cadets on the the ship Mm. And the plants were thrown overboard. Oh, now, right. Which okay. is kind of so sad. It's all for naught. Yep. Yeah, it's all for naught. So, having read the second account that's more charitable towards the mutineers, the way I think I would see it is that rather than a conspiracy, the mutiny was likely the sole device of Christian during his night watch. So, it seems like he hoped to escape the ship during the previous watches. He told the carpenter of his plan and asked for some wood to build a, a raft 
Um, oh, interesting. Kind of try his luck on some island. Yeah, I, I, I read, dis- I'd read that um, actually some of them had had actually tried to help him or you know agreed to help him build a raft, <clears> which, <throat> like you mentioned, that the open boat was suicide, but a raft was uh, even, worse. even worse. Yeah, and they sort of yeah. said, "You're mad. Like you're 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 insane if you're gonna if you're gonna jump out of the boat on a raft." Um, you know, possibly he he was. Yeah, possibly. You know, he yeah, might have had. Uh, I, I saw one one account on I think the Armed Forces website in the UK suggested he had uh, borderline personality disorder. Mm. Whatever the reason, he he was dissuaded by some of the young gentlemen, sure. uh, Stuart and Young in particular. But they did kind of reassure him that he wasn't the only one who felt this way. So that right. night, he got only half an hour of sleep before taking over the watch. And when he came on board, his mate and the midshipmen who were meant to be also keeping watch were asleep. So the ship was his and there was no one to stand against him. So he had the opportunity, he had the motive. And in the heat of the moment, he hatched a scheme, armed those men he thought he could trust and seized his hated commander as it was now. And... When Bly asked him, is this how you will repay my kindness? You know, this mentor relationship. Uh, Christian replied in a way that I think Mel Gibson performed quite well in the 1984 films. Mm. Luke, you found this clip. Yeah, let's, I think let's drop that in it's here. Pretty close, it's pretty close to the documentary evidence. Mm. So. You take your hands off him! Take your hands off him now! Get your hands off him! Now! Mr. Christian, I appeal to you, sir. Put aside this madness and it'll all be forgotten. I can be my word. It's too late. It's too late. Think of my family and my friendship. Think of my wife. I am in hell! Hell, sir! Why are you being so damned reasonable now? God! Damn your blood to hell with mine, sir. God damn your blood. Mr. Christian, get a hold of him. You be quiet or I will run you through. Do it, Christian. Kill him. Shut your mouth. You shut your mouth. I will run you through and then I will kill myself after. You get him dressed ah. now. Get him dressed. Get him dressed. Oh. Well, what's the matter with you? Yeah, so that was a that was a clip okay. from the 1984 movie, and there have been a few. Um, the 1984 version well, we'll, stars we'll um, Mel Gibson and uh, Mel Gibson as as Fletcher Christian, who you just heard, and Anthony Hopkins as uh, Captain Bly. But yeah, one uh, one detail as well is that uh, Christian allegedly during the du- during the course of the mutiny uh, hung like a, a weight around his neck, mm-hmm. a, a, mm-hmm. essentially saying. Um, to the crew, like, if I fail in this mutiny, I'm going to jump overboard with this weight around my neck and kill myself, basically, uh, because I'm, you know, quote unquote, in hell. Uh, so to it was. Fair, that is a reasonable. That is a reasonable. You know, there was no good way out. For sure. Mutiny. Once, once you start a mutiny on a on a Royal Navy ship, uh, yeah, prob- you, you probably can't a, say sorry, a quick yeah. death is 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 the best you can hope for if it doesn't go well. So, yeah, should we take a quick break here and then we'll um, carry on with the the aftermath of yeah. the mutiny. Mm.
so just after Bly is forced into the boat, the mutineers uh, break out the rum, as you mentioned, Joe, and apparently toast their victory. Um, again, it's disputed as to... Uh, to victory! Yeah. To rum! Uh, it's disputed as to whether they, they did cheer like, um, yay for Tahiti or, or whatever it is that, that they were supposed to have said. Oh, yeah. um, but Bly, uh, again, according to Peter Fitzsimmons' book, which is one of the ones I, I read, um, sort of mentally marks every man who drinks uh, for retribution. And one of those is uh, is Haywood, who we, we we will talk about later. But he seeing him drink, um, Bly Bly assumes I think at that point that like he's with the mutineers, whereas apparently he's he's not mentally with the mutineers, but uh, it's not one, yeah. also not one of the people that volunteers to go into the boat with him. That's so Peter he, Haywood. Peter Haywood, yeah. It's it's kind of confusing because there's a Haywood but and a Hayward. I think a Hayward. Yes, which is uh, particularly when you're listening to audiobook is not. Uh, not helpful. Let's but. just let's just never mention Hayward again. He's not important. He he just, is a little bit important actually. We uh, we'll, we'll see that a little bit later. So uh, which is annoying. I, I realize that Bly has good reason at this point to make a list of enemies, but you know making a list of enemies is a bit Nixonian. Yeah. And the the more we kind of go into this, the more I think that they were both jerks. Oh, interesting. And were both yeah. nuts. Right. And were both. I mean, it. You know, look. Inevitably, no one ever thinks to the bad guy. Everyone is always the bad guy. Sure, everyone does terrible stuff all the time. We teach it. We we try to tell ourselves we're not doing it, but we 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 do dreadful stuff and it's bad and whatever. Um, these were just a pair of bad dudes who were pushed to breaking Mm -hmm. point and both did a bunch of dumb stuff. It's very likely. Um, so anyway, and thank you for listening. Yeah, (laughs) that's our conclusion. Uh, That's the end of the episode. Right. Um, leave us a review on iTunes. As, as the one who read nothing about yeah. this, that's my view. Um, okay. So in the immediate aftermath, uh, Bly orders his men immediately to steer away from the side of the ship, afraid that uh, Christian and his men could fire upon them. So that's this kind of shows how little he trusts the, the mutineers. He's like, maybe they'll, you know, they've already basically sentenced us to death. Maybe they'll, you know, maybe they'll just shoot us in the boat and then be be done with it. But um, they don't do that. Knowing that Bly is like an excellent navigator, they are very te- tempted, uh, the mutineers, to de- deny him uh, the compass and sextant, uh, which he's been using to navigate, but they do eventually give him both, which is, which is going to be crucial to their survival. The mutineers assume mm-hmm. that the castaways will head for a uh, nearby island of Tafua, which is about 30 miles away, and they figure that even if they make it there, okay. they'll be stranded there for years, uh, and you know, so they, they'll have a, a long time to make good in their escape. Oh, wow. So from the boat, uh, Bly, whoever's mad. Yeah, Bly is, is, I mean, he's ambitious, if nothing else. He's very determined. Yeah, yeah, he's very determined to, to, to see justice done, as we mentioned previously. Uh, so that day, Bly and 18 others who were with him in the small boat begin the journey to Tafua. The start of their journey is marred by, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an ominous uh, omen. The, uh, the, the first day, I think, they, they are attacked by a shark. Um, in which they lose in one of the oars from their uh, boat. Whoa. Yeah, uh, like he, he jumps up. Amazing. The shark jumps up into the water and like takes the end off one of the oars. Which they're like, okay, um, let's not end up in the ocean, lads. <laughs> this this wasn't one of the movies, was it, Luke? I don't think so. This, I don't this, think this so. One... This is this is from one of the books that I read. Um, <laughs> if you spend money on Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins, you have no money left for for sure. For Jaws. So they reach the, they do eventually reach Tafua safely and begin to gather supplies and water. However, after just a couple of days, the natives turn pretty hostile. Bly senses that an attack is imminent upon his men after a couple of days and tells them to flee to the boat. Peter Fitzsimmons again, he's he's the most recent book that I read. He paints like this great picture of like Bly essentially um, standing in like you know 
being the last man uh, on shore as he like kind of backs away from the natives as they as they sort of surround the white men sharpening their spears yeah they begin to row away but uh, the natives apparently catch hold of a rope that's anchor anchoring the boat to the shore and one crewman uh, a guy called john norton jumps out of the boat and uh, wades to to the shallows and cuts the rope but is beaten to death by the natives before he can make it back into the boat they're pursued by natives in canoes and unfortunately have to throw out many of their supplies uh this is both to uh, lighten the load in the boat and make it easier for them to row away but also because they're like hey look shiny things and they throw like clothes and um you know yeah, uh, yeah. barrels out of it's out of the boat it's both very patronizing and works yes it does work mm-hmm. um so once once they've narrowly escaped from tefua uh they you know have kind of a, a come to jesus moment um in the boat and they're like okay what are what are we going to do and and bly you know in a fairly rare uh, democratic showing Asked the men to essentially vote on where they should go, or what they should do. His his idea initially was not to go, to do what they eventually did, but one of the men um, suggests that maybe they could head for Timor, which is about three and a half thousand nautical miles or uh, six and a half thousand kilometers Jesus. away from where yeah. they are um, in a row in a in a small boat. That's Indonesia. Yeah, uh, modern day Indonesia, I believe. There's, I mean, there's yeah. East Timor as well, which is separate. But yeah, I mean, but the the island yeah. of Timor now is mostly controlled by Indonesia, as far as I know. So Bly tells them that okay, if we want to do this uh, with our current stores of food, we will be allowed just one ounce of bread and a quarter pint of water each day. And he, he you know, verbally gets the men to agree to this uh, before they set out. And that um, just for those that are, it's it's grim. Yeah, the, I mean the, the account of. The account of this void just grim. Yes, so everyone's just banjacks. Yes, it's it, so that that equates to about half a slice of of your <clears> standard, <throat> uh, you know, uh, sliced bread, and about half a standard coffee cup of water each day, and this is in the South Pacific in an open boat. Oh, um, God. So that's uh, yeah, that's that's pretty rough. There, there 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 is some great great stories, but like capturing birds mm. and their sails and like just. And uh, ripping the boat, and drinking the blood, trying to uh, catch rainwater and this sort of thing. Oh, but um, the boat journey from mm-hmm. here has very little to do with Pitcairn, but it's it's a it's a pretty extraordinary yeah. tale. Um, and they did it. They did it. Yeah, <laughs> they, I mean, they got they got there. And this was like Bly later, like when he eventually returns to England, is like hailed as uh, you know a hero essentially for for being able to complete this <clears> this voyage and doesn't lose a single man with the exception of john norton who's killed by natives obviously but uh to starvation and that sort of thing um <laughs> apart from that guy who was yeah. beaten to death he doesn't but he doesn't he doesn't uh, none, none of his men die oh, under his his command in in the boat at least but uh, a couple of them do um <laughs> a couple of them ex- expire <laughs> yeah a couple of them expire later but um it, it sort of shows like he is able to ration the men effectively and, and sort of, you know, really command this this open boat journey. But he's got a very different attitude here where he does seem to have turned it around to being, as you say, not, not democratic, but like, you know, he's he's brought everyone he's, on board with his plan. He certainly l- learned from his mistakes, yeah. Been... Again, again, though, I mean, there, there does seem to be this, I don't know if it's like the, the dominant narrative in the books that you've been reading, but like there does seem to be this kind of push towards, you know, you know, everyone thinks he was a jerk. Well, actually, he was a pretty cool mm. guy. Here's why. But actually, you know, he okay, he managed to get a group of people to follow him. They've already bloody <laughs> followed him. He selected a group whose sole characteristic is they love following this yeah. tit into crazy situations. 
So yeah, he, he managed to convince them to do some mad plan. And just, it, sorry, just if you look at the flipping map, Timor is not nearby, and there are a lot of things in between Timor and the Pitcairn yeah. Islands, or Tahiti, or any place else for that matter. Papua New Guinea for one, yeah, I Australia I, I don't know why for they didn't another, go Papua New, Guinea. New Zealand for I think, a third. I think Papua New Guinea at the time was believed to be inhabited by uh, cannibals, and like a lo- I think a lot of these um, mm. islands in this region, and we, I mean, not for no reason, because we've talked a lot about cannibalism in this region before. Not all the islands in this yep. region were uh, were as friendly as the friendly islands, um, and Timor was. I mean, Tafua was meant to be nice, and they uh, they weren't. Yeah, they were not. Um, so yeah, one of uh, I think the reason they headed for Timor is because they um, there was a Dutch settlement there, so that's that's you know they were like, where is the nearest civilized place that we can head for? Uh, so that that's that's what they decided right. to do, um, and Bly apparently even while sort of rationing out the bread and, and water and that sort of thing, maintains his yeah. instinct of mapping and charting the places through that. which he passed. Uh, so they were the first Europeans in this tiny boat. Just can't help himself. Yeah. They were, in this tiny boat, they were the first Europeans to navigate and chart the Fiji Islands and went on and um, passed through the Great Barrier Reef, which seemingly is, a, again, a, a really tricky place to, to navigate in a boat, of course, because you, you don't want your, your boat to get ripped up by coral. But on the 28th of May, Bly and his party reached what they call a place called Restoration Island near the northernmost tip of Australia. And after about one month at sea and on starvation rations, they they salvaged some oysters and and, uh, different, you know, shellfish. They made about two, two and a half thousand miles, averaging 90 miles a day. Once the food supplies increase, basically tensions begin to mount again. Uh, one crew member is, is challenged at this point by, by Bly to a duel when he insults his honor. Um, but the crew, the crew member refuses <laughs> to take up arms against him. For about 12 more days, the men uh, rode through the open sea. And uh, on four, 14th of June, they come within sight of Timor. And Bly writes, It is not possible for me to describe the pleasure which the blessing of the sight of this land diffused among us. They hoisted a small Union Jack, which Bly had asked them to construct from signal flags proud <laughs> proud until the oh. end and they sail into kupang harbor uh beneath this tiny union jack on june 14th uh but yeah just to stress again never before had an open boat been sailed so far and so well uh a bit more than four thousand miles through treacherous waters so well uh a sixth of the earth c- circumference over 47 days so uh not not bad as a navigator so christian uh, taking command of the bounty after the mutiny, headed to the small island of Tabuai. so uh, about 450 nautical miles or 380 kilometers south of Tahiti. And shortly thereafter, the crew decided that it would be uh, very suitable for their purposes and uh, return to Tahiti to collect their sweethearts and recruit some more Tahitian men as labor. However, the situation on Tabuai was not as hospitable as it seemed, and the natives on that island soon began to turn against them. Uh, the bounty returns to Tahiti, and then Christian is told by Haywood to uh, head for England on a bounty. He refuses to do so, and uh, Haywood like essentially blames Christian for the mess that they've been dragged into. So Haywood was the the young lad, super young lad who kind of didn't really want to be in the mutiny, but also failed to pick the right side yeah. at the time. So they sail back to Tahiti basically, and they they pick up like the uh, the you know a few the people that they've left behind, but they can't. They figure that it's it's not best to stay there because they you know they don't want to. They're on the run. Yeah, they're on the run, and they, they figure that okay, on the off chance that Bly survives, like even if he doesn't survive, 
They'll come looking. They're going to come looking here. This Those is the last place. Those love they... Tahiti. Yeah, for sure. It's one thing they love. Yeah. But I, I also thought that the the chiefs weren't particularly keen on them when they understood the situation. Yeah. So they they went back to to Tahiti and they they sort of like they they lied about what what exactly had happened. Uh, you know, they asked about where where is Bly and like what you know what happened to him, and they make up some story about how Bly went to meet Captain Cook, I believe, or something like something like this. Um, <laughs> the only you know, other person you've heard of. Yes, yeah. they fabricated some story about in, this. In the anyway, big and, frigate in the sky. Um, at, at at a certain point, they decide, okay, they're gonna they're gonna leave Tahiti. Uh, with nearly thirty Tahitian do, men and women, do you have any do you have any sense of the if the Tahitians all wanted to go? Uh, I don't believe they did. Um, so yeah, they, they, it was right. it was um, you know the, the, some of the men, some of the women like that had sort of fallen for the mutineers. They obviously you know did want to accompany them on wherever they were going, but uh, some didn't. Yeah, some didn't, and so they they landed to Buai, and uh, they're they're they decide okay, this is. This is the place for us, and they try to establish themselves there, even though there are like three main tribes that are warring uh, on this tiny island of about seventeen Amazing. square miles. Convenient. Um, the crew, obviously being mutineers, decide uh, you know start straying from Christian's orders. Mutiny. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Dude, he, we know best. Could have seen that coming. Yeah. yeah, he struggles to maintain control over the mutineers, but they they manage to band together and build a fort. Which they decide, okay, you know, this is this is probably a, a good thing for us to have, just in case, you know, the the navy ends up coming after us. Um, you know, we, we want to have three a, warring tribes for, for sure. Yeah, uh, they named the fort after King George, ironically, uh, king of the country that they betrayed. He was so loyal. Yeah. yeah. In September 1789, after a few days of debate, they they the tensions basically boil over, and they decide, okay, we're gonna we're gonna debate and figure out, you know, whether we're gonna stay here or not. Uh, Sixteen of the twenty five wish to return to Tahiti. Uh, Haywood and the loyalists vote to return because they want to be found. Obviously, so the loyalists to Bly, you know, they they want to be on Tahiti because that's the, the 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 best place for them to to be rescued from. Because they want to get picked up and go for sure. And explain themselves. For sure, yeah. uh, Christian. <clears throat> okay, recently. Christian offers to resign as captain if they will allow him to take the bounty after delivering them to Tahiti. And eight of the mutineers offer to stay with Christian. Like Christian is like. You know, I there's no way that I can stay on Tahiti because you know it, it's it's just never going to work for me. So yeah, right. yeah, I I you know I, I I need to make my way somewhere else because if I'm discovered, I'm obviously completely screwed. So a couple of days after deciding that they're going to leave, they're ambushed and almost wiped out by about 700 natives, who outnumber Excellent. them 30 to one, as they attempt to gather uh, their possessions like their uh, livestock and 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 different things that they have spread around the island. Uh, and I have in my notes here, time to GTFO. <laughs> they return to Tahiti in September 1789, uh, but they only stay one day before departing and Christian does not set foot on the island. The mutineers who wish to stay on, t- on Tahiti are allowed to depart. Uh, and in the middle of the night, the next day, like unexpectedly, uh, the rope tying the bounty to the shore is cut and some of the Tahitians are carried away without even realizing that the ship is, you know, He's leaving oh, for good. At this point, uh, Coleman, I think you mentioned earlier, uh, Joe, who's one of the loyalists to Bly, he uh, jumps overboard mm-hmm. and swims to Tahiti, and he uh, he ends up there. The boson. I yeah, think. he's a boson, yeah. So all, when all is said and done, nine mutineers and 19 Tahitians make up the final crew of the bounty, uh, leaving Tahiti. After wandering for a few weeks between the friendly isles, uh, Christian resolves, okay, we need to actually get out of this neighborhood entirely because this is the, the most likely the area that the the, the Navy is going to look for us. 
And looking at Bly's maps, he settles on an island called Pitcairn, about 1,500 miles right. from Tahiti. I think at this point he knows that it was incorrectly plotted because some okay. people have reported Someone's that they, were, back they, there and, yeah, yeah. they went to look for it and couldn't find it. So It's somewhere, like, just not here. Just not exactly where it's plotted. So uh, 15th of January, 1790, after seven weeks of searching, they finally find the island 200 miles east of where it, it, it had originally been plotted. And it proves very difficult to land at. Like it's, um, you know, if you look at pictures, it's it's like quite sheer. Like the coastline is there's just there's no natural harbor, bay or anything. Right? Yeah, there's one very very uh, small Tiny. harbor that's like you know difficult for a big ship to land at. And now yeah. called Bounty Bay, appropriately. After they establish themselves there, the Bounty uh, after a couple of weeks is burned. And there's some debate about how this happened. Like some people think that oh, it was arson. Like some mutinied. Yeah, um, you know, but Again. essentially someone, you know, somebody wanted them to have no reason to escape or no way to escape, basically. And they also didn't want any kind of a signal to the, to the Royal Navy uh, that some, you know, people were living on this island and a, a big honking ship is going to be a, a pretty dead giveaway if anybody happens to sail by. So on Tahiti, meanwhile, there are tensions between the natives and the mutineers. Uh, one mutineer is killed by one of the others. Well, just to be clear, so there's nine British men. Yes, and nineteen. There's nineteen Tahitians. Six Tahitian men. Yes, twelve Tahitian women and a baby. Yes, on Pitcairn. So we have on we Pitcairn. have essentially three. So that's that's the, we have three parties that's now. Your time zero. Yeah, we have three parties now, which is uh, the the party on Pitcairn, the party on um, Tahiti. Tahiti? And also yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Bly's party. Bly. So it's it's a, it's a little bit difficult to follow. We're going to try to focus on Pitcairn mostly, um, but there is a lot. There's yeah. a lot going on here. But the, the 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 real issue with that group is so again as I, as I was trying to allude to earlier is it's pretty clear not everyone of the Tahitians necessarily wanted to be there for sure. Um, some as you say seem to have been in quite committed relationships. Others were basically abducted. Yeah. And the the arrangements were very worrying. Mm. Were like each of the white men took a wife, and then they sort of said, "Well, there's a couple of women left. You can amuse yourself." Choice, oh god, Polynesian lads, right? Yeah, the the, the gender imbalance is going to become very important here um, as time goes by. As he, as, as he, I think you're alluding to, Joe. Yeah, well, it's just it's a terrible situation. Yes for it's like it's yeah um I suppose rome has its own mm. similar so yeah on tahiti as i mentioned like there there are some tensions between the natives and the mutineers um there are instances of of rape and also murder um on tahiti which you know for this paradise island is is doesn't sound um particularly appealing pretty blighted yeah origin. yeah um then uh on July 1st, 1790, having make, made it back to England eventually, uh, Bly publishes his account of the mutiny, and it becomes an instant bestseller. It vindicates him, places the blame squarely on the shoulders of Christian, uh, and in October of that year at a court-martial, he is formally acquitted of any blame for the incident. And in November, uh, the, a ship called the HMS Pandora is dispatched to round up the mutineers and return oh, them to England. Um Essentially, on Pitcairn for the first six or six to twelve months, um, things you know were were relatively calm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the Pandora now, and then we'll get back to Pitcairn after that. But um, so on the 23rd of March, uh, 1791, the Pandora arrives at Tahiti after four and a half months, about half the time that it took the Bounty to 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 get there. And on board is one Thomas Hayward, 
who successfully made it back to England with Bly and has now come on this voyage to uh, identify the crew of the bounty. Uh, Within a few days, all 14 surviving bounty men had either surrendered or been captured. uh, And basically no distinction is made by Captain Edwards of the Pandora over who is guilty and who is innocent of the mutiny. And all of them are confined to what's called Pandora's Box, which is a makeshift prison that's constructed on the on the deck Great of name. the uh, of the Pandora. Curious. Yeah, this full marks. Uh, good name, terrible, terrible place to be. Um, I'm going to give you a quote here from much much like Pandora's yes, Box. Yes, I'm going to give you a quote here from James Morrison, who was one of the prisoners who was kept in this box. Uh, he said, "This place, which we styled as Pandora's Box, was only 11 feet in length and 18 feet wide at the bulkhead." in which were two small scuttles, or I, I suppose openings, uh, of 9 inches, and one on top of 18 to 20, 20 inches square, secured by a bolt. When it was calm, the heat was so intense that the sweat frequently ran in streams to the scuppers and soon produced maggots, <sighs> and the hammocks, hammocks given to us were full of vermin, from which we could find no method of extricating ourselves. Um, That's pretty horrible. Yep. So there are, what, uh, 14 men, I think, fl- in this... Fletcher Christian thought it was in hell. Yeah, 14 men in this box of 11 by 18 feet. Um, and essentially, it became so hot that all of them decided to, to strip off all of their clothes to try to get some relief from the heat. So you got 14 <laughs> naked, sweaty men in this tiny, tiny box. Um, sounds awful. I mean, um, for some people. Uh, nah, depends for sure. It depends on your proclivities, I guess. Um, yeah. So on the 28th... Isn't that like MMA? Sort of? Yeah. Uh, on the 28th of August, 1791, <laughs> having given up entirely on, on apprehending the rest of the mutineers, Edwards uh, decides to turn tail and set sail for England. On his way, he decides to anchor in the Great Barrier Reef during a storm, and the HMS Pandora is later pushed onto the rocks and smashed. <laughs> Yeah, so the the ship starts to go down. Edwards has uh, seemingly very little sympathy for those in Pandora's box because he considers them all mutineers anyway. He leaves some of them chained He's, up. Right? He leaves some of them. I, again, I read a couple of different accounts of this, but uh, like some say that at the last moment he he sort of relinquished and and allowed them to be set free. But even then, it was it was like quite late in the game. The thirty one crew members and uh, four men from the bounty are drowned or lost in this in this uh, wreck. The survivors of this um, opt to head also for Timor in the very small boats remaining to them. And for Thomas oh, God. for Thomas Hayward, who is one of the survivors, this is the second such journey in two years. Oh, That's what I was alluding to at the top of the episode. It's like this case of deja vu. It's like, oh, good God, how have I ended up here again in a tiny boat? What are the chances? Yes. Um, so Bly, after his name is cleared... Uh, Bly is ordered to go back to Tahiti by the Admiralty once again to collect breadfruit. So, uh, you know, uh, they're like, okay, you didn't didn't, didn't work so out the first time, but yeah, we'll, we'll send you again. They send him with two ships, I think, this time and like uh, a complement of Marines to like enforce his orders. But on the order of the guy called Commodore Thomas Paisley, uh, who is Peter Haywood's uncle and is commander of the Channel right. Fleet, a young man named Matthew Flinders is asked to keep an eye on Bly during the voyage. Oh, yeah. Flinders so, Bay. Yeah, so Flinders, Flinders. even at this point, there is um, some doubts, like some doubts are surfacing about like Bly's accounts and his his exoneration from the whole thing. Um, you know, he stole my cheese. He stole yeah. two wheels of cheese in my house. <laughs> I'd love if he got home after the voyage, went home to like his wife, yeah. and goes, <laughs> "That's for the cheese." <laughs> <laughs> 
for sure. I really thought it was Christian. Yeah. Really it's a lovely, uh, lovely bedside table, honey. Just what, what is smacks that? himself in, well, the, in actually, the forehead. Well, actually, it's just a tablecloth of these two wheels of cheese I found. Yeah. So, yeah, as I say, some 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 people are already beginning to plot against Bly, basically, and, and know that, this, you know, his story you and his published accounts are not... He has, a, he, has a good, he has a good career after this, yeah. so it's yeah. fine. So for the first six months to a year on Pitcairn, the settlement begins to grow and thrive. A Creole named Pitcairn, uh, like we mentioned at the top of the episode, develops, which is a mix of Tahitian and English. Christian's son, uh, the first child to be born to the mutineers, is born in October 1790. He is born on a Thursday in October. So he is named Thursday October Christian. <laughs> because okay. apparently right. because either Fletcher Christian was not very inventive with uh, his names or because he wanted he apparently also wanted his son to have no name that were remind me of England. Thursday doesn't remind you of mm. England. <laughs> in 1792 in June, the captured mutineers arrive back from Cape Town. So uh, the ones that survived the Pandora anyway. They're confined in a ship called the Hector uh, at Portsmouth to await trial. In September of that year, Vice Admiral Lord Hood presides over the trial. Again, there's a lot more to this story, but basically some of the mutineers, particularly the, the ones that had like, uh, you know, were from the higher classes, they had much better re- legal representation. Like like, like Peter like, Haywood. Like Peter Haywood, a, for sure. As a Commodore for yep. uncle. Uh, so whereas uh, the poorer men have to represent themselves, Final mm. verdict is that the four that Bly claimed were innocent are set free, including uh, the blind Irish fiddler, uh, Byrne. Yes. Uh, Haywood and Morrison are found guilty. And do you know who's great, great, great grandson? Oh, All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Haywood and Morrison are found guilty, but are recommended to the king's mercy, which basically means that they are they are found guilty, but were, are given a reprieve. Pardoned. Yeah. One later walks free on a technicality leaving three guys called Burkett, Ellison, and Millward to hang. They do so on October 28th, in full view of the rest of the Navy in uh, Portsmouth uh, Dockyard. Uh, they do this in front of all, all, uh, a, a huge crowd of, of ships and sailors to discourage others from mutinying in the future. Mm. Portsmouth is like the capital of the British Navy, even today. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's no um, exaggeration. However, much of the testimony during the trial had uh, sullied Bly's good name. Like, uh, there were a number of people that had contended against his allegations and against his accounts. Uh, he later returns to England after his successful voyage in Tahiti in late 1793 and is not greeted as the hero he once was. Uh, public opinion begins to turn against him in the next, the following year. When Edward Christian, who is the brother of uh, Fletcher Christian, uh, a law professor, published uh, mm-hmm. what's known as the Appendix, which is a document made up of claims from surviving mutineers that he's gathered, attesting to Bly's cruelty and blaming him for the mutiny, and uh, mainly because of the way that he treated his crew. Uh, right. Yeah, this document was one of the one of the uh, most important in the whole saga. And I believe has influenced a lot of the public perception from this point forward. Like, you know, the the movies that we talked about and adaptions basically like paint him in a very negative light, a lot of them. So, and finally, back to Pitcairn. Within the first year, tensions begin to develop uh, between the mutineers and the Tahitians. Men are constantly mm-hmm. treated as, as slaves by a select number of the crew. And uh, the women are passed around, as you mentioned, Joe, between the different mutineers. In September 1793, the uh, so they weren't they weren't even satisfied with their original arrangement. No, just, some I I, uh, I think some of the women were happy, but some of them were not. Some of them were used well, as I, like shared wives, I and like get I said, the impression that uh, Mawatua 
Christian's wife seems mm. to have been an actual it seems to have actually been a relationship. Yes. And she later married uh, Edward Young, one of the other mutineers when, right. when Christian was dead. Um so I think she was kind of a matriarch and wanted to be close to the power, as sure. it were. For sure. Um but yeah, it does seem like a lot of the other women were were essentially treated as slaves as well. Yep. As the men. Uh so in September 1793, we reach a breaking point where five of the mutineers, uh, Christian, Williams, Martin, Mills, and Brown, are killed by the Tahitians in a carefully executed series of murders. Oh, wow. uh, these will not be the first Great. murders that are committed on Pitcairn. Christian himself is set upon, apparently, while working in the fields and uh, is first shot and then butchered with an axe. And his last words, apparently, were, oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Although, for the conspiracy theorists out there, there are uh, some reports that apparently uh, some people believe that Christian escaped to escaped England. To England. Yeah. And the, when I mentioned William Wordsworth at the top of the episode, that, that was uh, a lot of that conspiracy is because he wrote a letter to a newspaper claiming that Christian was not at all to blame for the mutiny. And people are, and he'd, he'd apparently never written to a newspaper before or never did afterwards. Uh, hmm. And people were like, how the hell did he know this? But as we I mentioned before... I think that I did one time see a man walk up out of the sea. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. So, yeah. But ostensibly, by, by most accounts, he was killed uh, in this orchestrated series of murders. The remainder of the mutineers flee and hide in the woods. Um, and then the women rise up and uh, have their revenge against the Tahitian men. Which would suggest at least those widows... Were were some, happy with the situation that they were in for sure, or at least unhappy about the the murdering of their husbands. Yep, which doesn't seem like the typical behavior of of slaves. Yeah, so I don't know. It seems to be complicated and poorly recorded for sure. So once all six of the uh, of the Tahitian men are dead, the mutineers then demand proof, and the women cut off the heads of the men and present them to the mutineers. <sighs> Great. The four remaining Happy mutineers Christmas. then rejoin the camp. This leaves uh, four surviving white men and 11 women. There is then an uneasy peace for a number of years. The women become liberated and the men are now the ones that are, quote unquote, passed around between the women. Nice. Four years go by and eventually the men, as men do, figure out a way to ferment alcohol. And uh, drunkenness very soon after becomes a way of life on the island. Later, one of the wives of the men dies in an accident. And he drunkenly. This, this is Quintal, who was Quintal, whipped, who was the guy who was flogged, and was one of the principal mutineers, I believe, one of one mm -hmm. of the 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 more notorious ones. Uh, Quintal's wife, yeah, she dies in an accident, and while totally sloshed, uh, he demands to take a wife from either Smith or Young, despite there being many other women available, and threatens to kill them unless they submit. They then agree, okay, let's just murder this guy. Uh, that leaves three: McCoy, Young, and Smith. That on Christmas Eve 1799, 12 years on from having left England and nine after settling here, McCoy commits suicide by jumping into the sea with a weight around his neck, as Christian had once threatened to do. Hmm. And that Christmas day, apparently Ned Young, um, Edward Young, is hit by an asthma attack, which kills him. And as, uh, as Fitzsimmons, the guy that I mentioned earlier in his book, puts it, he, quote unquote, succumbs to that rarest of all things for a pitcairner, a natural death. Um... <laughs> Smith is now the only one left with 10 women. He resolves to give up the drink and to treat the women well. And for the next well, decade... This, this is when he discovers the 
ship's bible right? yes so apparently uh edward young was teaching him how to read because he didn't know how to read uh and was using the bible to teach him and that was the only book they had yeah and after uh all the all this death and carnage um smith begins to have like a, a nightmares i believe or is plagued by sort of visions of like you know hell and decides that he needs to repent and as the sort of patriarch of the of this small clan of, of women and children he decides to become a very devout christian and uh yeah he he misinterprets a lot of the uh the the, yeah, the meaning of the bible right. so for example he 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 reads it like ash wednesday and good friday you're supposed to fast uh and he interprets that to mean every wednesday and friday that you're supposed to fast do things really fast uh, yeah no no actually not to not to eat so right. uh, for a, a very long time on wednesdays and fridays he just commands that they don't eat anything which is, hardcore is, Catholics weren't much different in very, the past. Yeah, I suppose so. But he would have been Church of England, you know. I wouldn't be into that kind of thing. Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> the island very slowly and misguidedly becomes a very strongly devout Christian outpost. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1808... There was something like they, they, they would say grace before eating everything. Like yeah. Every individual thing. Yeah, be like, tedious. They, they'd say grace before having the bread and then they time. say grace before the fish because they they knew they should do it but they're not, they weren't quite sure how so oh, yep. cover your bases and yeah they they um they say like they have uh, sermons and, and mass services like twice a day and then three times on Sunday so they become like one of the I think in the book that I read they become like one of the most devout Christian outposts in the world so in 1808 uh, 19 years on from the mutiny, uh, a ship called the Topaz, an American whaler, anchors offshore looking for seals, send two boats to the island and encounter English-speaking natives, which must have been a surprise, on a seemingly undiscovered island. And um, <laughs> That would be so confusing. Yeah. They tell them they're from America, and they say, where is America? Is that in Ireland? <laughs> um, so, yeah. I've heard the opposite question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is eventually discovered and, and is sort of like pardoned for his part in the mutiny, uh, even though he was... Uh, also apparently one of the one of the chief mutineers he was very but, mutiny yeah he he had a thing he, he had two names right yeah yes. he was he had a he had a false name i don't know how much you have about this mark or do you want to do you want to continue um, on from well here, I, 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 I was just checking that there because uh, i had him down as john adams but apparently he also went by yes. alexander smith and yeah. you're saying that his yeah. name is john smith so obviously it got a bit mixy mixy between the two kind of sets of names right sure but adam adam is what the the capital city capital town village village of, yeah. uh, capital house Pitcairn is is called adam adamstown right mm. yeah after him so yep. yeah as you say he, he became kind of the patriarch he became very uh strict about when people should marry and stuff like he kind of said we need to all become monogamous and start murdering each other in the way and I also you're all cousins yeah and also like wait till you're 20 and till the land before that and like we all just uh, calm down that that last detail about age is is is, is unfortunate is pertinent what to, yeah but hmm. we're about to get to um do we want to take okay. a break or uh, yeah let's take a quick break and then we'll get to sort of more modern day stuff we're from pitcairn island welcome you today we're glad you called to see us, but soon you'll sail away. We hope you will remember the love we've tried to show, the friendship we have made today remains, though you must go. 
So, um, by kind of early 1800s, the only surviving mutineer, as you say, was this John Adams, John Smith, Alexander Smith, whatever. Um, despite this fact, uh, the size of the community increased steadily over the years to about 40 by the mid-1810s. And it was around this time that the British government first became aware of the settlement. Oh, mm. no. Of course, because they, they never talked to the Americans, did they? Or they got a letter. They doubted the Americans, I think. They were like, oh, this ah. American captain claims that uh, he, he met bounty mutineers. But, I mean, he's an American, sure. so who, who cares what he says, basically. But, uh, unusually, they showed little interest in establishing any kind of authority over the island. Um, mm. Again, it doesn't really have any natural British. resources or anything. So, you know, on the face of it, you know, why would you bother? Um, the population of Pitcairn continued to grow, and by 1830, it was close to 80 people. There were concerns over whether the island, with its limited cultivatable land, uh, could sustain such a population. And the British and Tahitian authorities organised an evacuation of all the settlers. Oh. However, this was not a success, and many returned oh. from Tahiti soon after. So, they wipe you know, human development off the island, and people kind of start to come back in dribs and drabs, as okay. as, as this is a repeating pattern, as we'll see. Um, mm. The growing prominence of Pitcairn and its people led in 1838 to Captain Russell Elliott of the HMS Fly, uh, superseded in the following years by the HMS Superfly, uh, took possession of the <laughs> islands on behalf of the British Crown, and he uh, drew up a basic constitutional document and a body of written laws. Um, the islanders also established a local council at the time. The level of formal oversight from London remained very limited indeed. They gave women the vote from the start. Uh, I, be- I, I believe that's right. I think that's that's a while a while Again, to come because it was but yeah because they were very woman heavy society. <laughs> indeed, yeah. Um, traditionally, Pitcairn Islanders considered that their islands officially became a British colony on the thirtieth of November, eighteen thirty eight. And as you say, Joe, uh, they were one of the first territories to extend voting rights to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1840 otherwise it would just be one man one vote you know just that one man and his one vote <laughs> I vote for points itself um, in 1845 the worst storm in the island's history destroyed many coconut palms bananas yams and boats uh, periodic epidemics of influenza also occurred and accidents were recorded with place names such as uh, one here is where Tom off uh, I will say actually a lot of this comes from uh, an ebook I found by a guy called Peter Clegg. It is very difficult to find information about Pitcairn because very few people are from there. It is a very small place, mm-hmm. and it's yep. not you know it's normally we're we're kind of doing countries or cities or settlements or whatever. Uh, ooh, it's very it's very hard to find information. Not it's not even a village really. Um, in 1856, the entire population of over 190 people was resettled for a second time. This time on Norfolk Island, a convenient 4,000 miles away. Oh, uh, didn't we talk about men, Norfolk um, with uh, Tasmania? and the, We did. The... We talked for a little yeah, bit about so... this back then and how some of them ended up in Tasmania. Because I think a lot of the Pitcairners ended up in Tasmania. Ah. But I didn't realise they were connected till you said it. Yep, this now. is it. Um, yeah. And Pitcairn remains uninhabited for another three years. When, once again, very slowly in dribs and drabs, some of the islanders return. And since then, Pitcairn has been continuously occupied. This is the last time that the uh, the population has been has been uh, forcibly migrated away. And the population will reach a peak of 233 in 1937. Hmm. There were some newcomers to the island, uh, very infrequently. Um, 
this was kind of closed off in 1882 where there was an issue where some newcomer fell in love with a local girl uh, and she mm. was already engaged to a local Christian type and the restaurant strong passions were aroused is what it says uh, and the commander of the visiting HMS Sappho was uh, was essentially asked to approve a law forbidding strangers to settle on Pitcairn. Ooh. The law, mm-hmm. the law was later amended, but only to permit settlement by those whose presence was considered of benefit to the island. So allowing the islanders to basically say who comes uh, com- mm. comes in to settle. Uh, right. But they did they did have problems with a preacher, or no, with a schoolmaster who was charging everyone to run the school and stuff, and he wasn't really particularly helpful. Oh, right. So uh, I, I can't remember the details, but yeah, the, you know, you don't always want people who want to live on a mad island to come to your mad island. They also all became Seventh Day Adventists at some point. Well, I, I was about to say like that. We're ready to see that's kind of like amendment of you know no one can come here. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. People that we want to come here can come here. Yes, and that's what happens with the Seventh Day Adventists. Um, the Islanders themselves have been staunch adherents of the Church of England, uh, in part because of John Adams and his strange take on on the Bible. Um, they they read and studied the Bible, uh, which was for many of them their only reading matter. Um, they read with increasing interest the contents of a box of Seventh-day Adventist literature sent to them from the United States in 1876. When a missionary arrived ten years later, he was allowed by unanimous vote to stay and argue his case. Ooh. The Seventh-day Adventists in America raised funds for a missionary ship, which sailed for Pitcairn in 1890. The islanders were all baptised in one of the rock-bound coastal pools, and the pigs were killed to remove the temptation of eating pork. But few other changes were needed. All were already total abstainers. Most were vegetarians, except for occasional meals of goat, which is not actually forbidden by the Adventist discipline. And few of them smoked. Weirdly specific. Okay. Um, in 1893, they get a little bit of parliament. Uh, the locals asked Captain Rook, of the HMS champion, to reorganise their system of government. You can see there's this pattern here of, you know... Uh, so, so they just use captains as as, yeah. as, uh, as legal that's, instruments. That's their main, you know. That's their main, uh, um, you know, envoys from from the empire, as it were. So you know that that's mm-hmm. what they use. Hey, hey, you guy who's totally overwhelmed by the issues of this island, do X, Y, Z. Okay, is this fine? Yeah, but it's basically fine. Okay, bye. Anyway, and, See, and that, in they, a they decade kind of or away. so, you know, and they're yeah. kind of in a way self governing in this kind of weirdly sporadic, opportunistic kind of way. Uh, an elected parliament of seven was introduced, and for the only time in Pitcairn's history, executive and judicial functions were separated. The legal code was revised to create penalties for, amongst other things, adultery, wife-beating, cruelty, and peeping toms. Okay, it was kind of a pattern there. <laughs> well, rather, yeah. What they were concerned about. In 1904, mm. the British consul at Tahiti paid his first visit to Pitcairn and found the parliamentary system too cumbersome for the small community he reintroduced the post of chief magistrate and two committees to take charge of internal and external affairs that is marine affairs essentially kind of in terms of external um all the posts were made subject to election and an additional office of secretary treasurer was created an annual license fee for the possession of firearms was introduced which until 1968 when motor vehicle licenses were introduced was pitcairn's only tax wow um so since this kind of early time, the political relationship between Pitcairn and Britain has evolved. In 1952, Pitcairn came under the jurisdiction of the governor of Fiji 
And in 1970, uh, it was kind of moved to New Zealand, essentially, because Fiji became independent. The oh, yeah. governor of Pitcairn uh, has the power to make laws for the peace, order, and good government of the territory. But day-to-day oversight continued to be weak, uh, but was kind of mainly moving towards being with New Zealand. From the early years of the 20th century, life on Pitcairn was characterised by limited communication from the outside world, a minimal operating legal system, and little local knowledge of laws and practice. The absence of any effective civil authority, apart from the local magistrate, and little influence exercised by the British government. So, in a way... Yeah, in a way, that sounds good. Uh, They're being left to do their own thing. And the empire and society at large in the global context is not really bothering them. Which brings me to the early 2000s. Due to the accounts of um, many of those who had uh, been affected by this and had kind of left the island, uh, moving to Australia, New Zealand, kind of places like that, um, there, there was accounts of some very unpleasant sexual things happening on the island um so routinely yeah routinely there was a practice that had developed uh of older men having sex with underage women um and it's it's important to bear in mind the size of the island is still you know kind of 80 90 70 in this context it's a very very small group um and in kind of speaking about this there's a very good article i'd recommend it's called uh, evil under the sun the dark side of the pitcairn island um, and it's by somebody called Kathy Marks, who also has a book on the subject called uh, Trouble in Paradise. So I'm going I'm to begin with some quotes uh, and just kind of a little account, basically to kind of get to the island to kind of talk about this issue. She's a journalist, and they're brought in to meet with the, a group of the island's women who are essentially telling them, look, this is just how it is, and it's fine, mm. so don't even worry about it. Wow. Um and like it, it's so nor- like so it's completely normalized rape is completely normalized possibly going back as far as the origins of the island i, I mean yeah. it, it, we, it wasn't like, tracked there's no there way was of no, knowing, there was no but... good administration there there's no way to track this Here, here's a quote from the article um the women explained <clears throat> that underage sex was the norm on pitcairn darlene griffiths the daughter of one of the defendants told us in a matter-of-fact way that she had lost her virginity at 13. And, and this is a direct quote from her. And I felt shit hot about it too. I felt like a big lady. Others clamoured to make similar admissions. I had it at 12 and I was shit hot too, said Jay's sister Meralda, a woman in her 40s. Olive Christian, important to note that name, Olive Christian described her youth with evident nostalgia as a time when we all thought sex was like food on the table. Wow. The women did not apparently believe that anyone could have lost their virginity at 18. A mother, Carol, now declared that no Pitcairn girl had ever been abused and almost in the same breath told us she had had an unpleasant experience as a child. It didn't affect me, she said. I was probably luckier than some I've read about. I was 10 at the time, but even at 10, I knew it was wrong. It's a bad thing. I screamed like hell. That's the way of life on Pitcairn. You get abused, you get raped. It's the normal way of life on Pitcairn when I was growing up. Uh, those are just a selection of quotes in that article. It's really worth reading, and I, I imagine the the, the, the book itself. Horrifying. It's mm. it's it's really awful, and it's kind of to be honest, it was it was the thing I knew about Pitcairn because I remember that those those trials happening back in the kind of so early two thousand. I think you you read a bit about it as well, Joe. Yeah, two thousand four. Because what I what I read about on, on this was um, there's a real struggle getting 
uh, well, as you seem to be saying, like getting the community to even accept that there's a it problem. It was wrong, yeah. You know, like the six, six, I think six men were imprisoned in the end. That's about right, yeah. Which is, you know, out of 40 or 50 people, that's a terrifying percentage of society. Yep. And their victims were, you know, neighbors, relatives, cousins, everyone. Yep. Um, and it was all, you know, and people, you know, women in their lives were defending them. Yeah, and it was and all blaming the girls for causing trouble and stuff. It's just not the first time in the world this has been a generational choice to stop a cycle. But it's just yeah, when it's it's such a microcosm that it's. Uh, but I, th- I think it's also a really unique horrifying. example because, um, in one sense, I mean the. The, the refrain from the islanders is that you know look you don't understand our life you don't understand our culture it's different to yours you need to allow us administer our own lives and you know by and large that's a message that um you know society in general would be kind of quite eager to accept and say you know okay you know, you, you, you should self-administer you should have your own culture you should have you know if you're different to, to how we think then that's fine but in in this context it's it's very hard to to kind of make that allowance and that that was one one of the main defenses from from the defenses was that well actually you don't have any authority here we we don't recognize mm. the british empire so they, they had to bring in a new zealand judge was it yeah it was i think it was new zealand judges and they actually had to build a prison on the island to mm. i mean you know not to say spoiler alert or whatever but i mean they they were convicted because they totally did it um and uh they, as did i assume many others who aren't in prison uh yeah i mean there was um it was it was what they could prove uh, and there, there were some that were acquitted of some charges um uh, but i mean I, I, you know in modern day most of them have have now served what sentences they were given from these charges and and are out of the community and I mean, there was a lot of um so there was one angle was you know you the colonialist the outsiders kind of imposing your will and your morals on us uh how dare you but another aspect was you know, as, as you kind of alluded to, Joe, like percentage-wise, you're, you're going to imprison 10% of our population. You're going to imprison mm. all of our able-bodied men. Like, yeah. it, it, it is not a hospitable uh, uh, environment. They they need to um, operate a sort of a... a, a it's termed, Subsistence fishing. Well, that, but also the, the, it's termed the longboat to basically kind of bring in and ship out um, goods. I mean, they, 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 for quite a long time, economically, have relied on being able to kind of sell very very small scales of products to passing ships um it's it's very difficult to raise kind of any kind of economic activity from someone like that it's it's, it's very hampered mm-hmm. there's no natural port there still isn't um i i uh this is i mean kind of moving into modern day a little bit but i, I was talking to a, a kiwi colleague of mine and i was asking him like what do you know about pitcairn because i knew about the kind of administrative connection he was like uh, I, I believe they have a new and very expensive wharf of some kind that we've paid for. I don't, I don't know any details about it, and I, you know, I couldn't really find much detail about it either. You know, whether it's been a big improvement, it doesn't seem to have been a huge improvement, to be honest, in terms of <clears throat> their kind of accessibility. And even today, it's it's a very hard place to get to. Um, yeah, I I, f- I found a, an article in the uh, British paper, the Express, yeah. which is a terrible paper. Sure. It's, uh, Famously unbiased and non-sensationalist. Um, oh, it's a pile of garbage. Pa- we can all agree. Yeah, but uh, their headline is kind of 
Fastlane is, is, is talking about the UK foreign aid cost oh, yeah. of um, of this place. So it revealed tiny Pacific island with just 42 people gets £18 million in UK foreign aid. Uh, Britain's age budget has handed the equivalent of uh, £400,000 to each inhabitant of Pacific Island over the past six years. It has been revealed. Um, yeah. Kind of complaining that they have a school and a health centre and a ferry. Mm. Yep. And um, a doctor, a nurse and a policeman. And, since 2004, a social worker. Because they clearly Cause need all that. that stuff that happened, yeah. But also the EU has given loads of money to Pitcairn because, of course, it's uh, part administered by the UK, which mm. is part of the EU. As we sometimes. Um, I read a, uh, I found this um, consultant's report from 2014, which was kind of like looking at the economy and like, wow, isn't this a mess? Couldn't, could this be slightly better at all? And I found uh, a couple of um, interesting paragraphs. So um, this is from a couple of years ago. So you know, you could say slightly out of date, but I don't think things don't change all that rapidly on Pitcairn. If, 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 you, if you've kind of looked into their history at all, um, in twenty thirteen, they had virtually zero birth rate, coupled with high outward migration and an aging population. Mm-hmm. And their view was it'll be a challenge to maintain this status quo number as the target of five immigrants, as set out in the immigration policy, has not been met in twenty thirteen. Uh, mm. They're already on the back foot, right? Yeah, um, and 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 again in the context of the horrible things that happen, culture yeah. about uh, you know about consent and sexual gender, violence, gender and stuff, violence, yeah. and so on. Um, a lot of women who go away to school in New Zealand just don't come back. Absolutely, and I think a lot of the a lot of the kind of freedom around explaining what happened on Pitcairn actually came from women who left the People island leaving. and were like and being. Well, being exposed to a world where they're like, that's not normal. Yes, yeah, exactly. yes, and, yeah. and you're having that validated. Because it's, it's often the nature of these kind of scandals is that people are just told not to talk about it, and they do. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're born into an abusive relationship, which like a lot of these people were, it's, it's I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, you may suspect that something is wrong, but I mean, that's, that's all that you know, and that's all that you're ever going to know unless you yeah. go elsewhere, so... Mm-hmm. And then they they've tried to um, encourage immigration uh, by offering like free free everything yeah. to people who will immigrate, and they had one applicant I think in two thousand fifteen. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, on on top of that, uh, I just have some other notes from that uh, consultant's report. Until the early nineties, uh, Pitcairn was economically self sufficient, with the primary source of income being the profits from the sale of postage stamps and interest mm-hmm. earned from the Pitcairn Island Investment Fund. Yeah. The isolation of the island makes the community vulnerable to infectious diseases carried on shore by visitors and also poses a problem for emergency medical attention beyond the scope of the current facilities. Medical evacuation procedures depend on the availability of transport within the vicinity of the island and it is not unusual to flag down a passing container ship or yacht for emergency transport. Mm-hmm. Wow. And finally, th- there's no safe harbour or anchorage and the difficult access has limited economic uh, development for the island. There is a single landing place in Bounty Bay, but visiting ships stay offshore to avoid the surf. Uh, and yeah, they, they you know, it's the long boats, this kind of like little mini shuttlecraft manned by the few men of the island. Uh, Who aren't in prison. That are the, yeah, exactly. That are the link. And in fact, there was a suggestion in the case, you know, we can let them out of prison to man the long boats because otherwise we're, we're actually in real trouble um but anyway yeah so that 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 i mean 
apart from so, that so another to, day to, that, that's to, it for me to end on a slightly uh, you know less depressing note yeah. um, there's been a lot of films about the mutiny on the bounty yeah for sure I mean and uh, I'd like to briefly critique them okay uh, before we wrap up so uh, sorry there's been a lot of adaptations in general so like we talked about Bly's account of him being great uh, and then followed a few years later by Sir John Barrow's more considered um, pro Haywood book pro kind of trying Haywood. to vindicate young Haywood from who cares uh, about Haywood uh, his family his influential family but oh. um, it sort of gives the, the balance to Bly's very one sided account Lord Byron wrote a poem called The Island, which I've scrolled through and had a look at kind of Lion Eyes and Christian. Um, it doesn't mention him by name, does it? Or or I'm, I'm, I haven't read it. It's called I... The Island or Christian and His Comrades. Ah, okay. So oh, okay. It's not all true. It, so it, like it's, it's, a, a, it's, it's he a mixed fact and fiction. And I think he mixed a s- story about different people into it as well because it rhymed or something. Right. H- having not read it, I, I can be 100% assured but it's a metaphor for his love of doing it. Um. Mm-hmm. It's very romantic, <laughs> for sure. Yep. Being a romantic poet. There are several novels which I haven't read. The, uh, Norhoff and Hall had a series of novels which I think were inf- influential in a lot of the books, or in a lot of the movies. And Richard Howe's Captain Bly and Mr. Christian also exists. Um, and our pal Jules Verne also was credited with the short story called Les Révoltés de la Bounty, which focuses more on Bly. But to, to get to the movies, so there's actually five wow. movies have been made that I'm aware of. There's a Lost 1916 silent movie from Australia that apparently did quite well, but uh, doesn't exist. <clears throat> then uh, in 1935, Clark Gable and uh, Charles Lawton Lawton, yeah, played Christian and Bly. It's it's no, it's quite good. It's not particularly accurate, but it's quite a good movie. Right. I watch that. So it has the, it begins with a press ganging scene, which of course isn't true. Right. Um, and as a critique I read says, mutiny is less serious when it's not carried out by loyal seamen of the navy. You know, if it's ruffians picked up off the streets in mutiny, that isn't that doesn't morally mean anything. Right. Right. It seems like the portrayal of Tahiti is quite close to the primary literature, and this the ship is beautiful. Like the scenes outside the ship, or like they built a ship for the movie. Okay, which is cool. But uh, basically, Christian is a dreamy hero, and Lawton is kind of a villain. Yeah, I mean, he's always Very he's always self conscious about. I feel like Christian is, is often portrayed as kind of mercurial, sort of en- mm. enigmatic one of the accounts that i read sort of sums it up as you know if you're if you're for christian then you're for sort of freedom and self-expression and autonomy and if you're for bly yeah. you're for authority and law and like the rules rules yeah so it's, it, it kind of you know it's it, it's sort of an everlasting struggle in that way which is is kind of an interesting way to think about mm-hmm. it weirdly two years previous to that 1933 there had been an australian film called In the Wake of the Bounty, which stars an unknown Errol Flynn as mm. uh, Christian. Speaking of people who love doing it, Errol Flynn. 
Prodigious. <laughs> he's, he's cropped up in a few episodes. I in feel like, like Flynn, but he's yeah. from Tasmania. Yeah, from Tasmania. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, but this it's it's, a, it's the whole movie's on YouTube, and we can put a link to it. Um, but it it was basically a travel film, so it wasn't meant to be a movie. It was supposed right. to be kind of a docudrama sort of. Yeah, some really good documentary footage of like random people called Christian and and Young. Yeah. Such and such Christian is the postman. Uh, that kind of yeah. I mean, you know. the the guy who's the mayor right now is is a dis- direct descendant of Fletcher Christian, right? I think his name is most Sean Christian or something. Yeah, mo- and most people are mm-hmm. like you look at like people who are in government right now, and it's like Young and uh, Christian yeah. mostly like mutineer names. So it's kind of a pity that the Tahitian women didn't have surnames. Yeah, you know? mm. that they're sort of in some ways Erased. lost yeah. to the story. Yeah. Um, and I think we've been trying to not fall into that trap, but it's hard. It is. So 1962, um, Marlon Brando, at first as Trevor Howard, uh, focused on a more heroic Christian who's quite a foppish gentleman, as opposed to a straightforward, down-to-earth bly. And that's, you know, so Brando arrives on the ship with like a French, you know, duchess on one arm and a... And a Scottish countess on the other arm. He's just come from gambling and he's wearing a stupid hat. And um, Bly is very unimpressed. So that's a different take. It didn't do very well. And then bizarrely, Movita Castaneda, who played one of the Polynesian girls in the Clark Gable film, was married to Marlon Brando. And his third wife was his co-star in the 1960s version who played Christian's lover. All right. Uh, Tarita Teriapaya. Okay. And they'd have two children together. So he only had three wives. Two of them were... were um, Polynesian women from from movies. Okay. About the bounty. That's a weird, that's a weird type. Mm. Specific. Um, and then in 1984, Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins were the two protagonists and this movie's more from Bly's point of view kind of showing flashbacks while he's being court-martialed and right. probably as far as I can see gives what feels the most accurate assessment where like neither of them are out and out baddies they both make bad decisions uh, Christian seems really out of it during the there are a lot movie. of clips I mean, of this on YouTube and it, it's I mean yeah it's I mean, it's mid '80s, sort of like overacting. I guess is what I what I would describe mm. it as. It, it's not bad, but like Anthony Hopkins kind of like barks every single line. Like he Good. he's he's yeah. screaming throughout the whole thing, and Mel Gibson is like you, you know me, you swooning and and you will not turn your back on me. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it's worth a watch definitely if you if you found this episode and, interesting. And a, th- a thread running through that and, and the book it's based on is a, an element of um homosexual jealousy which mm. so the idea that Bly had a thing for Christian that's that's also been a, a, a sort of an element in some of the the stories about it yeah I mean I don't think that's ever been and proven he didn't but like his behavior on Tahiti yeah he didn't like him falling in love with a woman for that sure bo- that bothered him and it soured their relationship yeah and you know definitely in a dramatic sense it provides good motivation for the change of a relationship that seemed to be much better. Yeah. Better Another event. thing that we didn't mention, actually, I don't, or I don't think we touched on it, was that um, uh, uh, Christian borrowed money from Bly at one point. Yeah. I think in in Cape oh, Town. That's a terrible move. And uh, and then Bly like sort of hung it over his head the whole time, like for the rest Famous of the voyage. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, we didn't we did mention that back then, but remember that time I lent you money. Yeah. So I suppose who knows how this place came to be, but it did, and it's weird. That's a very strange and place. I'm not sure it's a dream society as as they hoped mm. to set up. It's not. I mean, certainly not a paradise island as it, we it, might think it's about. It's very it much now, not. Yeah. I would um, say. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. I think it's kind of you know from kind of like the the tone of what I read it in terms of the modern day, it's kind of veering into like oh no like it's all going wrong kind of naru kind of stuff like i don't yeah. i don't see a way out of this guys jeez just, yeah. just scrap it and start over kind of thing there's there's a uh, note here that like um uh a diaspora survey projected that by 2020 2045 if nothing is done about the island's population only three people of working age will be left mm, uh the yeah, rest mm-hmm. being elderly or frail so yeah i mean it, it's kind of interesting because it's I mean, we sometimes we've talked in the past a couple of times about places that don't exist anymore, but this one is a place that this may not exist those, in the future. Yeah. Like depending on when yeah. you're when you're listening to this. Um, yeah. And to be fair, maybe the ancient Polynesians were right. Maybe, maybe so. It, it's um, not a place for hanging about in. Yeah. It is a place to not get hung by the British Navy in. For sure. Yeah, but it doesn't mean you'll have a better life. Last one. One of the last things I want to touch on is the flag. As we usually do flag talk. Uh, the flag is just like the the British um, Union Jack in the corner on a blue field, uh, mm-hmm. accompanied by the uh, uh, coat of arms, which depicts an anchor and a Bible from the HMS Bounty, and hmm. also uh, represents the you know history of the island. Uh, it's the shield itself is green and blue, uh, which apparently represents the island rising from the ocean, and there are also like a helmet and a crest. Uh, which features a, a what's called a Pitcairn Island wheelbarrow, which I have no idea what, uh, you know, it, it looks kind of like a just a poorly designed wheelbarrow. I don't know if that's a famous thing I, I, from Pitcairn. I know, but... I know we, we, we do this podcast for weird, weird details like that, but if yeah. I'm honest, I can live the rest of my life without knowing what Pitcairn wheelbarrow is, if, it, if it's not a, an intimate I think act. so. Um... I think so. I, I will agree with you there, Mark. Um, <laughs> it, might, it might well be. Last thing is um, uh, the bees. Um, the bees. Uh, not the bees yeah, yeah. Pickern Islands uh, bees apparently are a very placid variety of bees and um, oh good yeah and the honey uh, produced by them is exceptionally high in quality it's exported to New Zealand and the UK and apparently in London you can buy it in Fortnum and Mason and really? it is a, a favourite of Queen Elizabeth and, and Prince Charles Pickern honey yeah so there it, you go Mark some, mm-hmm. Fortnum and Mason's on my, in my uh, work constitutional route so I'm there you go that absolutely is that it that's it i mean it's sure it's right. 2 a.m <laughs> i look forward to a detailed letter critiquing us from all 40 residents <laughs> yeah yeah we do hope that people from the places that we're profiling listen to us but i mean hmm. i'd be very surprised if we have a listener from picker and please do like well the, get in the, touch as, as if you're listening said, from picker government has made sure they all have internet access for sure so, so you if know, you use that internet yeah. to download this podcast then we would really love to hear about it and before we go, we also have to say a very big thank you to the people that power the show, and those will be our patrons. Recent new patrons on Patreon include Gregory Craddock, Aaron Cathro, Sean, John Keating, Riley Horton, and Danielle Biaf, who send us some very lovely postcards recently, so thank you also for that. Yeah, you can find more about this podcast at 80daspodcast.com, including more episodes and our show notes, uh, which should also be available in your podcast app of choice. Uh, you mm-hmm. can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast uh, to get bonus content and more information about the show and uh, like be able to vote on the locations that we, we choose to visit in the future. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. 
Uh, that's at 80 Days Podcast or slash, slash 80 Days Podcast, uh, wherever, you, Everywhere. wherever you happen to want to find us. And you can also email us directly at 80DaysPodcast at gmail.com uh, if you have any feedback. Uh, we'd also really love if you could leave us a review on iTunes. A lot of you have been doing that recently, and uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, so, Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? Uh, they can go to timetoburn.com, and there, there's stuff there. And Mark? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MarkBoyle86. Uh, you can find me at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter or at my website, LukeJKelly.com. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.